The idea first came up, uh, there's a special agent uh, in charge in Australia, uh, Mr Cole Blanch, our Commissioner of Police. Uh, they got together and decided that uh, this may be a good idea, so we worked it through, did some costings and then found out uh, the DEA's um, view on it and yeah, it, it ended up materialising and here we are today. Yeah, so, so we, it's funny, we actually refer to what you call bikers, we call them bikies, um, which bikies, yeah, which people here thought was quite funny. Um, but yes, yeah, so we do have a lot of the similar, um, like outlet motorcycle groups that you'll see in America. Definitely they'll be involved in mainly drugs. Um, our firearm related offending is definitely a lot lower. Uh, it still does happen, um, but it's not as prevalent. Uh, but yeah, you, you'll quite often see outlet motorcycle groups are always involved in our sort of larger drug drug trafficking operations. So when I was in the, the districts and the as like a like a first responder kind of detective, um, I kind of t went out of my way to expose myself as much as I could. So if I heard on the radio you know, we've got a serious assault, we've got a stabbing, um, you know, it could be a potential homicide. I was always the first one trying to race out there and, and kind of take control of the scene. So I've always enjoyed that kind of work. You're listening to the ATO Bridge and Bead Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Hello, ATL family. This is Joe. I'm with my partner, Kent Wolverton. And today we're going to be bringing you a very unique episode. And with that, we also have a very special guest co-host in Dallas Police Narcotics Detective David Roach. He's going to be joining us a bit later. We're going to be giving the listener a peek behind the curtain of the Western Australia Police Force. The Western Australia Police Force was formed in January of 1834 it is responsible for policing the world's largest single police jurisdiction with over 150 police stations across eight metropolitan and seven regional districts and also covering Western Australia's 2.5 million square kilometers. We're going to be detailing an initiative and collaboration between two great countries that are over 9,000 miles apart. Two great organizations in the Western Australia Police Force and the United States Drug Enforcement Administration. 
This episode will have a couple of line changes to give the listener context to how this special assignment started as an idea and grew to what it is now in bringing the Western Australian Police Force to the Dallas DEA doorstep. I want to start this show off with having on one of the Drug Enforcement Administration's leaders, 23-year veteran and special agent in charge of the Dallas field office, Eduardo Chavez. He oversees daily operations in all of North Texas, as well as commands the entire state of Oklahoma. He is the boss. All right, Special Agent Chavez, you started your DEA career in 2000 in California? That's right. Originally from uh, New Mexico. Okay. But, uh, you know, DEA, they, they'll assign you anywhere. And I was uh, living in Los Angeles at the time, so they sent me to lovely Bakersfield, California. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the, along the southwest border, about 20 minutes away from the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, so, coincidentally, like El Paso, Texas was my big city growing up, despite the fact that I you know, grew up in New Mexico. All right. So, kind of, get, get, we're going to have you on for a later episode. Uh, after reading your bio, I was like, man, I got to get this guy on for, <laughs> uh, to tell his full story. But what got you into the DEA to start? Well, I mean, did, was that the only agency you applied for? Did you think no, about local law enforcement? Yeah, you know, so my uh, my dad was a firefighter for uh, 10 years and then uh, uh, jumped ship and went over to become a police officer. And in the small town I grew up in, the, the district attorney investigators are sort of the lead uh, investigators for all crimes because the police department doesn't even have a detective unit, you know, because of the size. So I grew up watching him uh, grow a beard and you know, obviously doing undercover. Then next thing you know, he was doing a white collar case or investigating a homicide. So you add that environment with the border and growing up and seeing some of my friends drive the fanciest trucks and had the loudest stereo systems when we cruised Sonic. Okay. And we knew that was because their parents were, you know, smuggling weed or Coke across the border. And uh, I just thought that was crap, you know. <laughs> Well, you have it, this this episode. Uh, it's going to be a minute before it airs, but we also have another one recorded from Omar Carrillo f- from Miami Metro Dade PD, uh-huh. and uh, he was uh, undercover in the eighties and nineties down sure. in Miami. And yeah. uh, it's uh, it. man, it's a wild ass wild west there. That was the heyday, right? So yeah. that was literally uh, you know the interest in law enforcement growing up. You know, and and with DEA, I think what attracted me the most was the. The cat and mouse game, you know, it's a very proactive agency because in a lot of cases, especially narcotic investigations, uh, the crimes are continuing to be committed. It's not reactive like after the murder, after the bombing, after the bank robbery. This is, you know, real time where, you know, the the need to be flexible in your investigations is keen. So it kind of keeps you on your toes. So I think that's what sort of attracted me to the chase uh, the most. You had mentioned the murders, so you know we we've talked quite a bit on this on this podcast about you know drugs synonymous with guns. Sure, guns are synonymous with violent crime. So, the, have you seen a nexus of drugs with pretty much all the other crimes, even even down to thefts? Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, it's amazing. You know, when I started, they used to talk about how drugs was almost a victimless crime, just affecting the person maybe addicted or taking those. Um, but, you know, over my 23 years of doing this, not only do you see the families who are affected by maybe somebody who's addicted to drugs, but you also see the families of those who are trafficking drugs. 
you know, how many times we've gone in and, and busted down a door at six in the morning and, you know, there's, you know, toddlers and elementary school kids just scared to death about what just happened. Wives sitting there where many times I've looked at them. I said, hey, look, you know, we did not invite ourselves here. You know, it was the actions of your husband or your son or maybe even them, you know, that invited us into your home at six in the morning. You know, and that's just a stark reminder because, uh, you know, even though it's doing our job and uh, I have very little sympathy for those who go to jail for trafficking drugs, uh, you still see that ripple effect. Yeah, well, the, every, all involved, uh, they buy tickets to those events and y'all that's don't right. y'all don't go to the, just bang down any door for, for nothing. There's something that led you there to begin with. That's the thing. And even in my time assigned in, in Mexico, I was assigned in Mexico City for a short time. Um, you know, you just saw that times 10, right? You know, you saw that violence, you saw that, uh, you know, it was, it was very much a saying, you know, um, who's, you know, who's going to be the next mother crying at a funeral when it came to somebody that maybe crossed a drug trafficking organization? Well, there's some countries that the drug traffickers, they are the government. They, I mean, they're unofficially the government and they run the countries. You know, and a lot of times people think it's money. You know, um, but these people, you've seen them, you know, you've even had Chapa Guzman make that Forbes, you know, wealthiest man uh, in the world list. Um, it it tends to be less about money as they get bigger and bigger and just tends to be just very much about the, the, the demon of greed and ego. And those have no limits. No, there's the, the power, I think ultimately takes over the money because they got after a while they got more money they didn't know what to do with that's right they can buy the country that's right no and and so you know they probably don't even know where half of it's stashed no i think they're still finding shit out in fields and excavating uh parts of columbia well that's going back to escobar you know in my hometown when i was in high school we all knew one of the big families that we were all suspected of uh of dealing dope and coincidentally I think I was in college at the time. The DEA, you know, this was well before I got hired. DEA went in there and and did this huge sweep. And, you know, they found a million bucks buried in the backyard that the uh, worms and other animals had already started to eat. And it was rotting. And it was because they they actually forgot it was there. You know, and that was just in a a small town in the southwest border of about 10,000 people. You had a million bucks buried in the backyard. Mother Earth's bank. That's it, right? You know, so that's that's honestly what what got me down this path, you know. And and DEA's been very good to me. Twenty three years later, you know, very very blessed to have the career I've had, and and you know, be able to kind of pay it forward. So you took over the the Dallas field office in twenty nineteen. Is that correct? Very end of twenty nineteen. That's correct. Yeah. So you know, the the Dallas field division kind of encompasses all of North Texas. So we have offices in Lubbock, Amarillo, and Tyler to include the DFW area, and then the entire state of uh, Oklahoma. So a little under 500 people under my watch. And the Dallas area, it, it, I'd imagine it's one of the biggest hubs as far as what comes into the country and then gets distributed through the rest of the country. Is, is that correct? You're right. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, look at Dallas strategically placed just within the United States and why so many other legitimate multinational corporations, you know, find their hubs here. You know, whether that's just for the airport, you know, accessibility to get to any part of the country within a couple hours or tractor trailer loads or whatnot. So drug traffickers see it the same way. It's just an illicit commodity that they are trafficking, but they're using that just geographic um, strategic part of where we are 
to uh, not only store it, warehouse it, break it down into smaller pieces. And unfortunately, you know, there's a good amount that sticks around for local consumption. Well, and it has maybe has something to do with the proximity to with the source. Of Absolutely. A lot of it's coming from. Right? Yeah. And, you know, believe it or not, you know, obviously a good chunk is going to be coming up from the valley, the Texas Valley, you know, coming up through the Brownsville's and McAllen's and the Laredo's and, and through that area. But just like any other thing, you know, you look at the interstate systems, you know, we still have a good representation, if that's how you want to talk about it, of drugs that come up that have crossed in Arizona and California and then make their way across like I-40 you know, and then end up dumping it into uh, Texas that way, just because those interstates, uh, you know, are the weakest, the weakest link to any drug trafficking organization is that you've got to get your product from point A to point B, you know, and that is their Achilles heel is it just doesn't spontaneously appear uh, ready for street sales. And so that's where we're there, hopefully to start picking that apart. And you've seen such, I mean, just the, probably the nature 23 years, right? 23 years. The investigations, how they take from a technology standpoint, have you seen just how much that's changed when you started? It's going to be... I mean, when I, when I first got on the job, uh, our, our office in Bakersfield had one cell phone for the office. Everybody else were given pagers, you know, and uh, we, we had to uh, still type on a typewriter. So for you kids listening to what, you know, you can Google what a typewriter is. Um, Thomas Edison invented that, I think. That's it, right? You know? <laughs> Uh, and so for that, you know, uh, now, you know, we're dealing with encrypted apps, you know, we're dealing with cashless transactions because it's all done digitally, you know, let alone the cryptocurrency and things like that. So it's really taken a turn. But I think that's what keeps all of us uh, nimble when it comes to this is uh, we're constantly riding that line of their creativity with our response to that. And uh, I think that's really kind of what makes us unique within the world lens of law enforcement is the fact that we are dealing with an adversary that has no rules, endless amounts of money, and all the time in the world to get creative with not only how they communicate with one another, but how they get their product from point A to point B. I'm glad you you mentioned the world lens because that kind of segues right into what this episode is about. And uh, when I, when I, was talking about it being a different type of episode it is the listeners gonna um they're gonna hear this so there was an initiative that 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 you were made aware of to bring in some australian detectives can you talk about that whenever you first heard about it and how that ball got rolling sure so uh, several months ago one of our uh, assistant special agents in charge uh, out of our oklahoma city office was promoted to be the the lead dea um, special agent in charge of the Asia Pacific region. And so that includes our offices, you know, DEAs all over the world, you know, over, over 80 different countries, 90 some different offices, uh, from Africa to, you know, obviously South America, Europe. And, and then in this particular case, the Asia, Asia Pacific region, um, we've always had a very strong relationship with Australia and our Australian law enforcement counterparts. And so once, um, my, assistant special agent in charge became head of that region. Obviously, we were talking frequently, you know, about the challenges that he had and, and just getting to know his own region. And the the thought, the idea came up about, you know, the the version of an exchange program. Um, in particular, the, the Western Australian police force had become 
really one of the strongest relationships with DEA in the country. Uh, the commissioner, Cole Blanche, is, is a good friend of DEA. He's known some of our uh, leadership in Washington, D.C. for many years. And, you know, anybody in law enforcement knows uh, that relationships matter most. And it's that camaraderie, it's that uh, brotherhood and sisterhood that we have that extends well beyond just your department. And in this particular case, you know, over 10,000 miles away. So, uh, so John, who's the special agent in charge over there, called me up and basically said, hey, what do you think if everybody agrees we can essentially send a couple detectives from the Western Australian Police Force to be there with you guys for several months. Uh, they're very interested in just not just the snapshot of what DEA does on one particular operation. You know, they want to be able to be embedded with us a little longer term to see the good, the bad, the ugly. And likewise, we can learn from them just as much. But in this particular case, to see perhaps a different lens um, with the same camera, right? So, you know, how we're doing things uh, compared to how they are. Because at the end of the day, drug traffickers are still drug traffickers, right? You know, they're still trying to get a commodity and we're still trying to catch them. And uh, so we agreed, you know, and, and it was amazing to see how quickly things were able to get put together. Because, um, I mean, there's questions about, okay, well, where are these guys going to live? First of all, who are these guys going to be? Who's going to get selected for this? How is that process going to go? It's got to be Mick Dundee. That's right. You know, and I was waiting for that Crocodile Dundee version. I, and I our counterparts, they're, I'm sure they're uh, already cringing, you know, at that. You know, uh, you know, have uh, Paul Hogan come running around here. You know, I get it, you know. But in that particular case, it was not only who's selected, but then, you know, where are they going to live? And, you know, what about cars and, and the cost alone? Um, you know, so we were working through those details. And then it was kind of funny. We, we realized that, you know, they needed to be here for 89 days. We kind of shrugged our shoulders a little bit like, wait, 89? And then we realized, well, 90 days then becomes a visa issue. <laughs> so, um, so 89 days it was. And here we are, uh, honestly, wrapping up these 89 days, and it's been a great ride, I think, for all of us. You know, uh, the, the two detectives that you're going to hear from a little later on, you know, uh, their experiences, and then, honestly, what we've uh, learned from them. I mean, it's so, in that particular case, uh, I think this has been a great success, uh, having them here. Um, we look forward to actually then seeing where this goes. You know, I know you're going to hear from them a little later on. But one of the things was, what was the value added for both our agencies? You know, out of the costs that they put forward uh, to to be so uh, cutting edge when it comes to um, willing to foot the bill for their two detectives to fly halfway across the world, pay for their living costs, and to be embedded in this, it really shows, one, a trust on our end. You know, very humbled. Uh, that they chose Dallas, and they even chose our agency to be a part of it. Um, but, you know, secondly, you know, what do they take back? I know we're going to be keeping a lot just from what we learned from them. Um, so we look forward to hopefully this is just kind of being an inaugural um, sort of setting for this type of thing, and maybe they'll, they'll go visit another division, you know, at some point. Do you see, do you see this as something that will grow, though? I mean, do we love it, right? You know, we'd love for it to be, um, you know, as much as, as the Western Australian uh, 
police force allows, you know, the ability to actually, um, you know, expand this to where now, you know, maybe they're sending a couple uh, agents to Chicago or to Los Angeles or New York, you know, um, because I think to me what I've learned over this time period is just simply the fact that we still have the same challenges. Uh, bad guys are still bad guys, and they're constantly evolving just as much in Australia as in the United States. And one, it's, I think, a little feeling of comfort in a weird way that they're still banging their head against the wall, dealing with some of the the same types of not only administrative and bureaucratic issues that all of our law enforcement agencies face, you know, but just the challenges with, uh, you know, sometimes the courts, you know, or sometimes the, the bad guys themselves, you know. So in that sense, uh, it definitely felt like, okay, we're, we're not alone in this thing. No, it's a global deal. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm just saying they ain't got the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> so I want to welcome on Detective Superintendent of the Western Australian Police Force, John Hutchison. John, thank you for being here. Welcome in to the United States. And this was this was your idea. You reached out to uh, Eduardo on this. Uh, firstly, yeah. Good morning. Thanks very much mm-hmm. for having me here and um, for allowing me to be part of this podcast. Uh, the idea first came up. Uh, there's a special agent uh, in charge in Australia, um, and. As uh, Special Agent Chavez said, uh, Mr. Cole Blanche, our Commissioner of Police, uh, they got together and decided that uh, this may be a good idea. So we worked it through, did some costings and then found out uh, the DEA's um, view on it. And yeah, it it ended up materialising and here we are today. Yeah, and you're wrapping it up. Yeah, unfortunately for the two guys, um, they've only got a few days left. They've been here for about 83 days, I think. And they finish on Friday. They're enjoying this Texas heat. So, yeah. so the, the are you? You look like you're going to be spearheading maybe this. If there is another initiative like this, do you do you think you're going to be the guy because you already had this experience and you'll probably be the one, be the liaison? I guess would be. Yeah. Once I was, I was asked by Mr. Blanche to organise this, I had a fair bit to do with the actual organisation. Um, obviously, in consultation with uh, Special Agent Chavez's office, um, ASAC Guy Baker was primarily my point of contact, and uh, he really assisted with the organisation of um, the logistics, the accommodation, vehicles, etc. I'd never been to Dallas before myself, so I really relied heavily on uh, Mr. Baker to give me local advice, I guess. Well, what did you? What was your perception of? Dallas, Texas, because I'm you've, you've heard of it before, clearly. Yes, we heard of it before. We knew, um, obviously, that it was pretty close to the border, which mm-hmm. is a large supply of uh, narcotics through the world, and we knew we always thought that Dallas would be a good location for us because of its pro- uh, close proximity to uh, Mexico and the drug supply in Mexico and the special. Uh, needs of an area like this where there's large amounts of drugs uh, transiting through and we really just wanted to learn a little bit about the techniques that the DEA use, uh, their methods of profiling. Look, you've got thousands and thousands of vehicles passing through the proximity to Dallas every day. How do they target select vehicles that they're going to have a look at? You know, Just that kind of stuff. The DEA are, are well known through the world as being 
uh, the leaders in organised crime investigations. At Western Australia Police, we're trying to build our capability in regard to uh, the investigation of organised crime and where else would you go? You start with the best. So we came to the DEA and we try and work more and more closely all the time with the DEA. Obviously, we have uh, differences in laws and our uh, powers, etc. However, on a lot of occasions, we can replicate what we learn from the DEA and uh, model it to suit our laws and use their techniques. Hey, uh, Hutch, I'm, I'm going to slip you the 20 after this podcast yeah. over for <laughs> yeah, just uh, giving us those kudos there. <laughs> yeah. appreciate it. I'm going to have to cut those clips out for, yeah. uh, for yeah, recruiting yeah. purposes for sure. Yeah, that's right. a great soundbite. Yeah. Yeah. One extra thank you card. He's got to go out and Christmas <laughs> cards. Yeah. Had, had you met before before this initiative? No, you know, so the crazy thing about it was uh, we did a couple, you know, speaking of the technology and how it's evolved and, you know, much sometimes to our chagrin, but in this particular case, it worked out because we set up a couple Zoom meetings uh, to talk about it, you know, and to talk about the process. And of course, you know, on, on our end, you know, we had to take a look at, okay, once these guys get here, um, what what can we expose them to? What can they do? Uh, obviously, safety was our biggest concern. Uh, any legalities that might come of it, you know, witnessing things, not witnessing things, being in the car with us, etc. You know, so of course, you know, um, you know, we we had to talk to some attorneys, you know, and talk to our uh, general yeah. counsel. But luckily, again, and I think going back to that, I think it just sets DEA apart of our willingness and the ability to be um, innovative when it comes to how we communicate with worldwide law enforcement. And it was essentially. Um, once these guys get here, we want to expose them to anything and everything that we do. Uh, we want to be able to um, have them go out with us, uh, keep them at a safe distance until scenes are secure. And, and you know, in you know, they obviously had no law enforcement authority while they were here. But many times we have, you know, intelligence analysts and other non-sworn staff out on operations, you know, in a support function. So this was a perfect opportunity to do that. And I think they've they've had a good share of experiences. Do you foresee uh, it going the other other route? Like I'm sitting next to uh, Detective David Roach and, you know, or sending Guy or uh, Guy Baker or David over there to do an undercover We'll Australian see, accent. I, I see. I see. Uh, Dave Roach sitting there nodding his head, going, "Please, boss. Yes, you know." <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll he's slipping to, you a twenty, right? Yeah, exactly. He's going to yeah. need a little more money than that one to cover uh, ninety <laughs> days in Australia. You know. But one of the things we are is is uh, so you know, uh, Guy Baker went over there to uh, conduct the interviews of, of the people who were coming uh, down here. So uh, he was able to go and and get uh, obviously a firsthand look at the police force. Um, we're also uh, one of the primary supervisors that have been sort of his. Um, our two guys, uh, chaperone, I guess, if you will, sponsor, I guess, you know, if you want to call it like that, you know, we're going to send him out there for a, a short time to be able to do that, you know, and it really comes down to just uh, what I'm amazed at is just the Western Australian police forces willingness to, I mean, frankly, shell out that kind of money, you know, to be able to host, send somebody for, you know, this isn't a one week thing. I mean, they were here for essentially three months. Uh, all expenses paid from that aspect of it to be able to do it. 
That's a lot of Applebee's gift cards. That is uh, <laughs> Applebee's. There we go. Here, here with the Australia references, right? You know, uh, you know you're going to hit shrimp on the Barbie a little yep. later on. You yep. know, yeah, yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> oh, it, it's bursting right now. He's, he's doing really well yeah, to make I, it I'm, this far without all the down and tamp it down and about to overflow. Dad jokes, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Can I just say, yeah, uh, we. It is a large amount of money for us to spend, and uh, believe me, it was uh, some hard decisions were made. However, we think that uh, in the future it'll be well worth it for us because uh, the, per- the potential to prevent community harm by learning these uh, innovative techniques that we're learning here and different ways of doing uh, drug-related and organised crime-related investigations, uh, we will get that money back you know, tenfold or, or more uh, in pre- preventing harm to the community uh, through seizing those drugs and stopping that organised crime in Western Australia and Australia. Or just here, just having a great uh, partnership with an- other agencies that are outside your own. I mean, this is a global epidemic. It isn't just a United States epidemic. It isn't just in Australia. Dr- narcotics and drug trafficking, human trafficking, all of it. It's a global ep- epidemic. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, and, and I don't know if uh, the, the guys here are going to talk about it. I, I don't want to steal any of their thunder, but, you know, Australia has always was been... Was that a, a thunder from down under? Oh, man, there we go. Thunder I, I from tried down to stop under. it. That's <laughs> yeah. right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll edit that out. Not really, but go ahead. That's awesome. <laughs> but the, uh, the, you know, the, the partnership from even just the intelligence sharing, you know, um, I mean, coincidentally, they had one of the largest cocaine seizures that Australia has seen. And lo and behold, uh, one of the conspirators uh, was a Texan, yeah. you know, and so... Now it's not just a phone call trying to figure out who is who. It's it's a friendship, you know, and that, you know, we, we always talk about DEA being a real small agency, you know, and you're only a couple steps removed from somebody who, you know, is going to call you and say, hey, um, I know so-and-so. They told me to call you because you can get it done. Uh, this has just put that on a whole other level, on a global level, when it comes to international drug law enforcement cooperation. Well, it is... It- it's a global issue. I mean, I, I would imagine, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, terrorism in the world. And I would imagine when it comes to drug traffickers that the bodies, they would have probably, uh, the bodies stacked up, probably they would uh, match up with anybody, any terrorist organization. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, it goes back to that greed and that ego, you know, and wanting to, you know, when when maybe you get one of these guys to tell you how much a kilo of cocaine or a kilo of meth is going for in Western Australia uh, compared to Dallas, for example, and that all by itself will tell you why it is a, a global challenge. You know, and let's not forget, you know, the whole idea behind it is there are still people who are suffering from uh, addiction and a substance abuse disorders, right? A family's ruined. A hundred percent. And for us, you know, it really sounds sometimes corny. Uh, from DEA agents, but this is really a, a calling. You know, it's a passion for us. You know, you always hear, "Oh, you'll never make a dent in in that drug trafficking." Uh, well, for us, to me, and I, I know our counterparts here feel the same, is if those drugs that we seize, if that allows just one person not to have it available to purchase, to maybe try for the first time, then we did our job because that's we see that in lives saved. And that's really how we look at it, and I know that's how our counterparts look at it. Superintendent Hutchison, can you talk about how long you've been 
in your in your role, and also explain your rank because we have different, uh, you know, superintendents, and we have com- some have agency have commissioners, special agents, officers, senior corporals. Can you explain? Let's not brush over the fact that he's done this since 1986. Like, go all the way back to to 86. <laughs> he, hey, for us. 1986 <laughs> with uh, Top Gun came out here, and. Uh, the uh, the Transformers movie come yep. out when I was a kid. So yep. So I joined uh, West Australian Police Force in 1986, as you quite rightly point out. So I'm in my 37th year this year. Thank um, you for your service. Uh, I um, have been with the West Australian Police Force all that time. I've never moved agency. Uh, there's probably less opportunity in Australia to move agency as what uh, you people have in the US. Uh, we don't have as many law enforcement agencies uh, we have our fair share but not quite as many as you guys have so i've stayed with the west australian police uh, western australia is the single biggest federated police jurisdiction in the world um, so there's a lot of opportunity to work in areas other than the capital city of perth and i've taken that opportunity and i've worked up uh, north in a region called the kimberley um, in a small town called Broome, which is on the coast of the kimberley is a small tourist town I worked up there for five years when I was um, pretty junior in the job, so from about 1988. Um, the rank of superintendent, I'm in charge of uh, what we call a division, uh, the Serious Organised Crime Division. Uh, the division has four different investigative units in it and a total of around 200 sworn staff uh, plus you know unsworn staff, etc. And we're basically responsible for uh, for policing the whole of Western Australia. So if there's a serious organised crime uh, job, say 3,000 kilometres north of Perth, in miles, I'd say that's probably about 1,500 miles north of Perth, uh, we will send people from one of the units I look after up to investigate that. Um, so, yeah, we cover the whole of the state. Uh, I'm in charge of the four units, each of which has its own individual officer in charge. Uh, Those officers in charge report to a detective inspector, which I would say is probably similar to a ASAC in the DEA, like an inspector. And then the two inspectors report to me and then I report to um, people a bit higher up. So if you can imagine the rank structure as a triangle... Um, I'm probably, you know, just about two-thirds of the way up the triangle as a superintendent. In almost four decades of law enforcement in, in your country, you've seen a lot of uh, drastic changes, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, well, back in 1986, things were a bit different. As um, Eduardo said earlier, the typewriter, well, we were lucky to have typewriters. We used to have basically one typewriter for the whole police station back in those days, and We've seen it um, change through to now, like we're very well equipped technologically-wise. So, um, yeah, things have really changed, of course, but for the better. Well, if you're not a student of the game and anything, especially in law enforcement, you're going to be behind. You're always going to be behind. And I I, I mean, because the suspects, they are students of their game. Exactly. We're always trying to um, learn, and we do work and we encourage our partnerships, you know, with either um, law enforcement agencies in Australia or outside Australia, such as the DEA and HSI, etc. So we're always trying to learn uh, different things that they're encountering 
uh, in their investigation so that we can either try and counteract that before it happens or we can uh, work out and develop our own um, innovative investigative techniques. So in 2022, uh, Commissioner Blanche, he asked you to start up an initiative. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, Commissioner Blanche uh, wanted to start up a transnational serious organised crime squad. Um, obviously, Australia being an island and Western Australia uh, just being a small part of that island, most of the narcotics that we see in our state are imported into Australia. We do have some manufacturing, but uh, most of them, uh, probably you know, 80% or more, is imported into the country. So From the US? Is it, uh, not necessarily, like, okay. not necessarily just the okay. U- US or, or South America, okay. but um, we're very close proximity-wise to Southeast Asia. Oh, okay. So that is a, a well-known yeah. uh, drug transit route. Um, and also we're seeing you know some drugs coming in from South Africa at the minute where they come from you know, places in the Middle East, uh, down the continent to it's South global. Africa. It's amazing when you hear and you sit... And hear him talk about, you know, you know, our sources of supply tend to be all South America based, you know, and when they're talking, you hear Southeast Asia, you hear, you know, South Africa, um, you know, coming down from the Middle East, you really see that global effect that drug trafficking has. Oh, yeah. So, so when this started, this initiative, did you, were you in charge of writing? Because you had, I would imagine there were a lot of uh, memos that had to be sent up and and policies and guidelines. Were you a part of that, that uh, yeah, part of it? We basically had a, you know the, the same number of staff and we just had to uh, do a restructure which takes quite a bit of planning, you know, different skill sets of officers into different locations. Uh, still trying to... There's obviously other needs. It's not just all transnational organised crime. Uh, for instance, you know, we go to clandestine drug laboratories, which are... Generally speaking, in uh, Western Australia, a small time. You know, what they, type of drugs are they creating there? In uh, a lot of the time, it's meth. Okay, uh, that they're creating, but only in in generally very small amounts. Are there a lot of pill presses over there? Uh, not really. Okay, um, I, I would say the division has probably seized only about two or three in the last four or five years. Okay, so we don't we don't really see too many. Um, so we we do have other responsibilities. So it's not all about chasing bad guys offshore. That's for sure. Of course. So um, we wanted to build that capability that rather than just be satisfied with arresting the uh, so-called Mr. Biggs in Western Australia, we really want to be able to work up the evidence and the briefs. We we say um, on the people that were supplying the drugs, whether they be in South America. Um, North Macedonia. We've prosecuted a guy in North Macedonia recently. Um, I don't even know where that's at. And we've uh, we've thinking the same thing. <laughs> we've we've uh, been to Jersey, off the coast of uh, England, in the English channels, um, to prosecute a guy there who supplied a, over a ton of gear into Australia, a t- ton of dope into Australia. So we're really trying to build that capability and our partnerships with different law enforcement agencies so that we have the ability to investigate people that are offshore. We've got no jurisdiction offshore, as Mr Chavez said earlier. We rely on our partnerships uh, for the local authorities in those countries to help us to gain evidence on people. That's one of the benefits of having this initiative right here. Yep. 
I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you just heard, you know, because a lot of their drugs are imported, you know, there, there is that natural need than if, if you don't want to just cut off the finger, right. You know, uh, the finger that just lands in Australia with the, the, the bloke, yeah, I tried to use one of those words, <laughs> the, the, the bloke that was arrested in, you know, Perth. I don't know. Is that more, is, do you guys use that word in Australia? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. It. Oof, yeah. All right. See, I'm learning. It's rubbing off. You know, if it's just not that, you know, you want the hand, right? Not just the fingers, mm-hmm. you know, and that hand inevitably will find itself outside of their, uh, jurisdiction, but yet, you know, through cooperation like this, through relationships, frankly, uh, we're able to get that. You know, I heard, you know, North Macedonia, like you said, I'm going to have to Google specifically where that is, you know, and then Jersey. And I'm thinking, okay, well, like Newark or, you know, but he's talking. The, <laughs> I was just watching the, Sopranos not, not last Jersey, night. I was right? thinking, yeah, oh, the, the old know, Jersey, the, the yeah. old Jersey, right? You know, <laughs> now speaking Look, of terminology, did you say gear? Is that some, what yeah, you guys sorry. call it? Yeah. I no, slipped hey. up there. Um, yeah, gear is kind of like a slang term that we use for drugs. Use as many of those terms as you want to. I think that'd be really cool. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Right, okay. Um, yeah. I noticed like the DEA tend to call it dope, where we would call cannabis dope. So if someone said, oh, I see some dope, we'd know they seize cannabis, for instance. So Instead um, of uh, like narcotics for everything else? For like if you say, narcotics, we'd say gear. Um, gear, meth, okay. Whatever, yeah. Uh-huh. People are going to be breaking out, listeners are going to be breaking out the Australian Urban Dictionary. And that's, <laughs> I want them to. <laughs> I will myself. So when you, once you finally got the policies and the guidelines, which I can imagine was a pain in the ass, so you, you got that groundwork laid, then it was time to the selection process. Yes. What were you looking for, and did you, did you already have some, the type of detective that you had in mind for this initiative? So for the Transnational Serious Organised Crime Squad, uh, we're looking for investigators that are keen, innovative, uh, got some new ideas, want to work, don't just want to come to work between eight and four. uh, Play on their phone. Yeah, Yeah. play on their phone. They actually want to get out there, talk to sources, uh, find new ways, talk to partners, and just generally uh, guys and girls that are... uh, keen to get out there and make a difference um the squad is very proactive um we try and cultivate a lot of human sources we use technology wherever we can um we've got a close association with the special operations division of the dea uh, also the nca in the uk um so we're really trying to draw on the technology of other jurisdictions as well as ours did you put out like a your feelers out for like was this kind of posted we need we need detectives that want to apply for this spot and how many people applied um, initially we handpicked uh, Mr. Blanche allowed us to handpick some people and in mm-hmm. most cases we were able to get those people um, so we kind of broke the uh, the general guidelines for recruiting staff where we advertise it, wait for them to apply. So gotcha. we actually approach people uh, that we knew were going to come there and you know want to work and ask them if they were willing to come and work. And in most cases, they said yes. Um, so we've actually formed a squad of people that want to be there and that really want to do the hard work and, uh, prep- and know what they're in for before they go there, which is important. How many meetings did you have with these... Uh these prospective applicants for the detectives that are coming over? 
Look, I relied on my um, senior management team, uh, the inspectors, as I said earlier, and some other senior, we call them senior sergeants, to recommend people that they thought would be uh, good at this type of work and then we'd go through, have a bit of a look at their background, have a look at um, you know, some other aspects of their past performance and then go, yeah, well, we want that person and then we would then approach them and, and see whether or not they were willing to come and in some some cases they said oh i can't because you know i've just had a baby or whatever yeah, you know, yeah um, it's a, whatever reason it's a big it, disconnect yeah and we've got to respect that of course and um, maybe they'll come in a couple of years time or whatever but at this stage you know we just ask people and yeah they came yeah the disconnect from your life for 90 days for anything i mean you know that, that's a big that's a big undertaking especially if you have a family yeah and going to a land that you 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 know not that familiar with. Uh, I think I've kind of misunderstood your question. Oh no no you yeah. go. So I was talking about recruitment for the uh, the actual transnational serious organised crime squad. Mm-hmm. So for this uh, TDY, um, the eighty nine days in the US, uh, we had uh, nineteen applicants uh, because we set the criteria when when we advertised it. We set the criteria. Um, pretty tight so that we didn't end up with hundreds of applicants because there's no doubt a lot of people would think, oh, of I'd course. like to go to the U.S. Vacation. for three months. Yeah. Uh, so we made it clear the type of work that they were doing and the type of person that we were looking for, someone with a bit of experience in the organised crime investigation area. Um, and so we had only 19 applicants, which was still quite a lot, even though we made the criteria so strict. So we were quite happy with that. Uh, we then uh, read written applications. Uh, people put what we call an expression of interest, which basically is telling us why that person thinks they should be allowed to come on this uh, TDY. Uh, myself and my two inspectors nutted that down to six, and then Guy Baker and um, another DEA agent from the East Africa region came out and helped us with the interview, so they had their opinion, and... Uh, we picked Ben and Dave. Was it always going to be t- just two that were coming over, or was there a talk of having more? Uh, yeah, we only picked two, and it was always intended to be two. Okay. Uh, because, I mean, we don't need six people seeing the same ideas, you know, coming all coming back with the same idea type thing. So I think it, it really people would say, well, why didn't you just send one? But I think it's, it's a bit of a support network for each other, Um you know they're not on their own over here. If, they, if you know one's concerned about the other one, they could always say, "I oh, think you know something's going on here. He's you know depressed or whatever." You know, so it was it was a little bit of a support network for them having someone from their own office here with them, um, and they could bounce things off each other and whatever. So I think it, it was always going to be two. Okay. Yeah, you would. I mean, I can imagine. I mean, nineteen applicants, but that was nineteen applicants that was off the original criteria that you put out. That's right. Okay. That's yeah. right. And then, you know, I, if y'all were to do this again, do you think you would take from that original pool or would you, like, it would just kind of start the process over again? No, I would start the process okay. over again because I think um, people w- may have been reluctant to apply because they didn't really, it was the first time we'd done it of any great mm. scale. Um and they didn't really know what they were getting in for. But now when Ben and Dave oh, go gonna, back... A lot of stories to tell. We're probably going to end up with 100 applicants. I yeah, would say. and then you know, um, yeah, your, your job's going to get really busy. Yeah. 
So one of the one of the criteria, just so you get a bit of an understanding, uh, the West Australian Police Force has about seven thousand sworn officers. Uh, we made it; you had to be a detective, a current serving detective, to be able to apply. So, I'm not sure of the exact numbers. So, uh, please take this with a bit of flexibility. But I think there's currently about eight or nine hundred serving detectives. So, um, that was quite a good figure to get it showed quite a lot of interest and I think next time as I say because they know what they're getting in for and the way um, the Dallas Field Division has looked after them and whatever they'll go back and uh, I think we're going to be inundated if we do it again obviously that's going to be a matter for discussion when we all get back and we'll speak to um, Eduardo and Guy uh, Mr Blanche no doubt will make an assessment talking to, to these people and yeah, we'll see. We might have a lot of Dallas Maverick and Texas Ranger T-shirts running around yeah. Australia here <laughs> in the next right. five years. And you can you can just hear it. You know the the degree of deliberateness that they were going in to just make the selection and the thought process behind it. You know, how do we make this successful as this investment when it comes to um, whittling down interest, identifying people, identifying the right people, and you know. To their credit, you know, the, the concept of the support network, uh, I think, was huge. You know, uh, I don't know how much these guys got along with each other beforehand. And, you know, all of a sudden you're going to be roommates, you know, uh, roommates for the next three months and away from uh, your families and, you know, kids and girlfriends and wives and whatnot, you know. But, um, you know, one of the things that and, and I'm sure, you know, you can hear directly from them that was always interesting to hear was, you know, we, we drive on the wrong side of the road here. I didn't know if you guys knew that. And the steering wheel's on the wrong side. You know, so even from the little things like getting in the car uh, or walking the aisles of the grocery store where everything looks the same, but it does not look the same. You know, and the fact that we don't have Vegemite here. You'll have to ask them about Vegemite later. <laughs> uh, Mr. Hutchinson, so you mentioned earlier that uh, keeping that connectivity so they had someone there for their mental health while they were here. Is that something that the Western Australia police typically keeps in the forefront, like across the board, or is that just something that you had kind of thought of on your own? Oh, no. Um, welfare of our staff, anyone who um, has a staff uh, number of, you know, sorry, I'll start that again. Uh, it's it's just um, basic human resource uh, policy is to look after the wellness, mental wellness of your staff and obviously the physical wellness as well but more so the mental wellness of the staff is a big priority to WA Police. Uh, we've got units in WA Police and that's what they're dedicated to do is look after you know, the mental well-being of all 10,000 of our employees. So it's it's kind of at the forefront of our mind. Anything that we do uh, it's one of the key considerations that we have. You know, we've seen, and I know you've seen probably a shift in mental health, take care for your first responders and mental health uh, from the 80s all the way up to now. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people going back to, uh, since America, you know, policing started in, in a global level, there is PTSD, there's trauma you're exposed to that most humans are not exposed to. Uh, and it, and it can lead to a lot of just horrible coping mechanisms, drinking. Uh, it, it ruins families. We've seen that. And I, I'm glad. Kudos to you all for, uh, for recognizing that and taking care of your troops. 
yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, we, we have uh, a number of chaplains that are on call 24-7. We have a psychology unit that is on call. We have health and welfare issue, um, health and welfare units. Um, we've got a very big support network um, because obviously keeping our employees fit, healthy, uh, both physically and mentally, we get the best out of them. We can um, do the best job. You know, like if everyone's fit, healthy, and happy, uh, they tend to work more harder. Well, your citizens also will see that the the ripple effect of a healthy. Uh officer or detective in mind body and soul that can translate to interactions with the police and also just them not falling apart mentally and physically as well yep 100 percent agree so dallas pd we just started up I'm, I'm proud to be a part of the new uh the new wellness unit it's uh i just gave you one of our little patches it's the officer wellness longevity the yep. owl yep and that is what we all strive for at any any profession is is being well and have a long, healthy career. Yep. And that's what the symbol behind that is. So we're about to turn it over to the two detectives we've been sitting here talking about. We haven't been talking about, about them behind their back. They've been sitting here looking over here nervously. They're going to be behind the mic here in a second. Uh, but I want to thank you all for first making this happen because as long as you all both have been in law enforcement – I'm sure you've seen a lot of programs put on the table and they fall apart and they just don't happen for whatever political uh, red tape that's thrown up uh, in your face. But I want to thank you all for making this happen, and it looks like it's a huge, huge success. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Uh, the idea first came up. Uh, there's a special agent uh, in charge in Australia, um, and as uh, Special Agent Chavez said, uh, Mr Cole Blanche, our Commissioner of Police, uh, they got together and decided that uh, this may be a good idea. So we worked it through, did some costings and then found out uh, the DEA's um, view on it. And yeah, it, it ended up materialising and here we are today. Um, we just can't express how much uh, appreciation we've got, not just to the WA police, you know, and, and what they're doing, but, um, you know, just to the individuals, to Ben and Dave and, and to Hutch here themselves, you know, it's, it goes well beyond, uh, the, the brotherhood of law enforcement. It's, it's, it's a friendship. Absolutely. Thank you, bosses. Now you're going to be ushered out we're doing like a hockey line change. We're going to have on the two detectives we've been sitting there talking about. We're going to start off with detective Ben Cox. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me along. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you? Are you familiar with our podcast? Yeah, I have. Yeah, so some of the, um, okay. the officers here have sort of shown me um, a lot of Dallas police that I've been working with. Um, so they sort of spread the word. Yeah, it's definitely Dallas heavy, and uh, I could thank uh, Detective Roach for uh, you know he's always supporting us and pushing that out there, and um, I appreciate it. And this is he was talking about y'all being in town, and he and Gal were talking that you're here for this initiative and i was like damn we only got like a week and a half left we literally threw this this episode together in probably like a week and a half and i'm glad i mean i would have already had you on uh just to take advantage of y'all being here on the soil yeah so, no, i appreciate you having us i hope everyone can understand my australian accent all you listeners no nah, we're <laughs> we're gonna i'll probably dub it i'll put in like a, a british how about this is that all right that works ladies will still love it um how long have you been in law enforcement? 
Uh, so about eight, eight and a half years. Okay. Yeah, so to the end of 2014, I joined the uh, West Australia Police Force. What are some of the assignments uh, that you've, you've been a part of? Yeah, so coming out, um, we have like a police academy that we do for six months. Um, and then ours is a little bit different where we're patrol uh, all the way up to detective. We sort of, our police force does everything. Um, and we are sort of the only police force in the state compared to you know, America where you have lots of different counties and cities. We just don't have that. Uh, so coming out, I worked in Perth Police Station, which is our capital. Um, that's a lot of, we have like entertainment precinct there. Uh, it's where a lot of people kind of start out. So you might walk around, walk the beat, uh, or in a patrol car just responding to incidents. Um, from there, I moved uh, to like an inquiry team uh, in the suburbs, uh, sort of nearby, which is just investigating like volume crime, uh, some street level drug dealings, uh, and sort of similar cases like that. Uh, and then after that, I proceeded to um, do our, what we call the detective training program. Uh, so that's quite lengthy. Um, you've got to go through a few different applications, um, sort of show that you can become a detective, uh, and then you move around. You get placed as a probationary detective at a few different locations. Uh, so during that, I've worked at our organised crime squad, uh, and then I moved to what's now called the Rapid Apprehension Squad. Uh, and that's sort of similar to what you guys in America here would have like a fugitive yeah. sort of squad, uh, as well as it incorporates um, armed robbery. Uh, so they'll, they'll often refer to them as the armed robbery squad. Um, they'll investigate all commercial armed robberies uh, and fugitives who they might be on the run, they might be on parole, uh, on like a home detention. And if they breach that, it's kind of that unit's responsibility to locate them. Uh, as well as general, we'd refer to it as volume crime, so burglaries, um, sort of offences against the person. Um, it's quite a wide-ranging. As far as like the, uh, what is the size of your department? Uh, so our police force has over 7,000 police officers, uh, and that en- encompasses the whole state. Uh, wow. Okay, so is it, you'll have a lot of civilian employees as well? Yeah, on top of that, we also have civilian. So 7,000 yeah, sworn, sworn and, then, and then non-sworn, about how many? I'm not sure how many, um, but I'd say it would have to be, you know, maybe a thousand, something okay. like that too, because everywhere we have, you have a lot of intelligence analysts that we work with, um, as well as administrative staff, things like that. We have a lot of that too on DPD. We, uh, like our physical evidence section at one time was pretty much primarily made up of just almost all sworn. Uh, and now it's very few police uh, and sworn officers processing crime scenes a lot of it's analysis very young uh you know they just come straight out of college and they go into seeing dead bodies and mm-hmm. and, and, and you know and, and crime scenes or any kind of crime scene and they're, they're exposed to that right off the bat yeah 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 and I, I think it's important to see like our state so big i think we've already talked about it but you can fit maybe two to three the size of texas into west australia so that shows kind of how widespread we are um you know we have a lot of different uh, departments within the WA police so we have like air wing canine um we have our own water police section you know it's quite expansive air wing yeah i like the sound of that <laughs> we're gonna i think we're gonna petition chief Kirsty to get that chain air one that air wing <laughs> i think you make a tv show out of that from Would the be. 80s yeah i think you actually need wings though we have a bird it's a little different <laughs> yeah it's true we'll work on it though hey we got we got friends that might have planes so you're what what are you part of now? The uh, the organized crime? Yeah, so I'm part of the transnational uh, serious and organized crime squad, uh, which was a newly formed squad uh, at the end of 2022. Okay. So, 
what type of crimes? I mean, mainly do you, or do you see what kind, is there if there is a crime epidemic? Not drug drug is probably related, but what is some of the big crime epidemics that go on there? As far as robberies, uh, the homicide, uh, thefts. What what do you? What do yeah, you normally see? Yeah, so we definitely see a lot of, like I said before, volume crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of home burglaries, uh, stealing of cars, just general stealings. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of that can be linked back to drug use. Uh, our sort of main drug that we'll see in West Australia is methamphetamine. Uh, and we can get into it as we go, but the cost of that is just so high that it fuels a lot of the violent crime that we see. Do you have a lot of like... Um Organized crimes like uh, I know you have you have biker gangs out there and and do you have a lot of like just gangs street gangs out there in, in that part of uh, Australia? We do. We probably don't see as much as over here. Yeah. Uh, maybe the east coast of Australia sees more street gangs. Um, it's not as prevalent in West Australia, um, but yeah. So so we it's funny we actually refer to what you call bikers. We call them bikies. Um, which bikies. Bikies. Okay. Yeah, which people here thought was quite funny. Um, but yes, we do have a lot of the similar, um, like outlet motorcycle groups that, that you'll see in America. Well, the banditos, I know that the banditos have chapters over there in, uh, in, in Australia. Yeah, correct. Banditos, uh, Hell's Angels you'll see as well, which I know are quite frequent over here. And I, and do they dabble in like the, when they come to organized crime, it was like they do over here as far as like drug gun running, uh, and just, you know, there's so much technology, uh, Use of technology with uh, with cell phones and, and, and just human trafficking, is that pretty prevalent over there? Yeah, most definitely they'll be involved in mainly drugs. Okay. Um, our firearm-related offending is definitely a lot lower. Uh, it still does happen, um, but it's not as prevalent. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, you'll quite often see outlaw motorcycle groups are always involved in our sort of larger drug, drug trafficking operations. Speaking of operations, uh, I want to talk to you about it's got a badass sounding name is Operation Hackbridge. Yeah, yep. Yeah, Talk a little a bit about name. that. Yeah, so look, as I said before, I was at the Rapid Apprehension Squad. Uh, so I was there for a couple of years. Uh, and like I was saying before, we were tasked with lots of things like looking for fugitives, uh, commercial armed robberies. Uh, and when that wasn't going on, we sort of had the scope to investigate just crimes that we identified in different suburbs um, that we could see was crime was sort of overtaking an area. Uh, so Operation Hackbridge was sort of started when we were looking for a fugitive uh, and we came, came across some firearms in a house, uh, which said we don't have that much firearms, but they are still, we'll still locate them every now and then. Um, a lot of our sort of good offenders and good suspects will still have access to firearms. It's uh, funny how that works, even though you, you have laws to prevent from having firearms, but bad guys always seem to figure out how to get them. Yeah, there's always a way. Yeah. 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 There's yeah. a will, there's a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not it's not as much the high powered firearms that we find, like mm-hmm. the semi automatic, um, but people still can own a lot of derringers, maybe. Yeah, firearms, yeah, like <laughs> rifles, things like yeah. that. Yeah, and you still get your handguns, um, but people will just do burglaries and get them. Basically, they'll you know they'll find out someone that's got firearms, target it, um, and then we've also had some large shops uh, like gun stores that have been broken into. Uh, so they're obviously a massive target. Um, we've had one where hundreds of firearms were stolen. Um, yeah interesting yeah so this job uh we found some firearms and we also found a lot of uh stolen property um but it was like large mining equipment so west australia has quite a big uh mining industry uh up in the sort of the northwest of the coast uh and we did some little research and found out that there was a group of suspects that were basically stealing what you'd refer to as um 
trailers and truck trailer kind of things with the um the large cargo theft. Yeah, yeah cargo theft. But they're actually stealing the whole um, trailer and truck. So yeah. what do you what do you call the trailers? Uh, we call them like an eighteen wheeler or like a road train. Sometimes we refer road to road train. Road train. Yeah. Damn, that sounds like a good movie too. <laughs> the title, Road Train. <laughs> it sure does. Uh, yeah, so they were that sophisticated that they were stealing them using uh, like a heister lift to move these big sea containers onto trucks that they'd already stolen, uh, and it was quite prevalent. Um, so, so that investigation went on for quite some months, uh, and it was sort of one of those where we threw the net out, and I think we ended up arresting about eighteen or nineteen people. Um, and you always find, even though this sort of volume crime, it led back to the main ringleaders were distributing drugs. And of course. They, it was just in conjunction with that that they were doing these volume crimes, finding these large commercial areas to do these burglaries. Any way to make money, that they're going yeah. to find a way. And That's yeah. it. That's it. And we've got a lot of uh, kind of rural areas uh, that they were using to store these things. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to hide a, a massive sea container, but they found a way out here. What is kind of, as far as like the the landscape there in in Western Australia? I mean, is it rural? Is, is there a lot of c- cities? I mean, you you see here in Dallas. I mean, what we're used to, but what is that like over there? Yeah, definitely. I say when I landed in Dallas, what I thought was how how big everything was, like the roads, the the shopping centers, everything's just so spread out. You know, even the houses. Um, we certainly don't have the multi-story highways that you have. That was terrifying. Quite, yeah, yeah, terrifying. Yeah. Not only are we on the wrong side of the road, but we're driving up a massive ramp. Doesn't look like there's much on the on the side of it. Um, yeah, so that was definitely different. A lot of specifically West Australia is kind of based on the coast, um, so we've got some great beaches there. Every a lot of people sort of grow up by the beach. Um, our roads, you, you're driving, you might be able to drive to work along the coast the whole way. Um, so we have great like white sand beaches. And that's where a lot of the population is focused on, including like the Perth, which is our capital. It, there is a famous actor that came from there, right? Perth. There is. There is quite a few. Okay. Was, yeah. was he, did I hear a while ago Heath Ledger? Heath Ledger, yeah. That's yeah. correct. Yep. Wow. So he's from Perth. Yep. Yes, correct. Best Joker ever. <laughs> I think so anyway. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. I, think I think it's pretty man. Head shaking, no, but no, I, no, I agree. <laughs> the second best. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Oh, don't say Jared Leto. No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Cesar Romero. Oh, Cesar Romero, yeah. With it, painted on his, over his mustache. Yeah. So in 2022, you were selected to join the Transnational Serious Organized Crime Unit. Can you talk about that? Yeah, correct, yeah. Um, so as you spoke to Superintendent Hutchison before, mm-hmm. uh, he was tasked by Commissioner Cole Blanche to create this new task force, a new squad. Um, so he had... One of the other officers uh, was an old boss of mine who was a detective inspector uh, and he had previously been in charge of the rapid apprehension squad. So he reached out to me um, and I'd never heard of this squad. I had no idea sort of that it was coming and he started explaining that sort of the basis around it and that we were going to try and target these drug trafficking organisations, transnational criminals that were really impacting West Australia, Uh, but maybe they weren't in West Australia and it was sort of a new concept that quite often we had run these big drug investigations and stopped at the border. Um, but now we realise we can use our partners like the DEA and other sort of agencies and we can go after these people that are overseas. Did you know Superintendent Hutchinson before? I did, okay. yes, correct. Yeah, so but while, um, like I said before, when we 
you become a probationary detective, you move around a little bit and get exposed to different things. And I'd done some time in the organised crime squad, uh, which was under Superintendent Hutchison. Okay. I, yeah. I imagine he's been there since 86. He's probably pretty well known by everybody. Yes, yes. He's been around for a Legendary, while. Legendary, I imagine, over there. Yep. So I want to get into the selection process of like when you met here. We're about to get into your buddy here, the other uh, detective. And yep. um, I want to – then I'll kind of kind – of, you're going to cross paths when it comes to why you're sitting here in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to welcome on the other detective. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell the listener what's your name and how and the heaviest Australian accent you can? You My can, name? Yes. Yeah. Yes. David Gilliland. So everyone kind of gets hung up on the on the David side. David. Okay. Can you spell Gilliland again? G I L L L I L A N D. Practice. Ladies are gonna <laughs> love. Ladies are gonna love that. He's done that once or yeah. twice. <laughs> yeah. You don't. You don't. Ha- yeah. Just. Uh, you don't have to have. You know how like, you have professional voice when you call a business and you're talking. You oh, know. Yeah. yeah. You don't need that here. Just, nah. yeah, you just, you're amongst friends, and don't worry, nobody listens to this anyway. No, no way. No, yeah. we're good. <laughs> so, how long have you been in law enforcement? Uh, I've just entered my fifteenth year. Oh. Okay. Yep. And have you always worked for the same agency? Yeah, so I started with WA Police uh, back in 2009, um, and I've stayed with them the entire time. Did you Did you know Ben before? Uh, y- y'all were selected for this initiative? Yeah, so um, I spent um, a couple months at uh, the Rapid Apprehension Squad, mm. uh, about four months, and I was on the same team as Ben. Okay, what are some of the assignments that you uh, that you worked in? Uh, so I started off, again, working on patrol, uh, working in more the smaller kind of suburbs and smaller towns, um, still in the metro area, but it was um, like small stations, maybe like 30 people would work there. Um, so I spent a couple of years doing that, and then I went on to be what they call like a plain clothes investigator. So the way our districts kind of work is we have detectives who kind of look after maybe like, um, like a county size. So, you know, they're responsible for investigating all the crime. Um, in there and being the first kind of investigative response. Uh, So I spent a bit of time just working along other detectives, kind of getting a bit of experience up. Um, And then 2013, um, I completed my detective training. Uh, From there, I did a bit of time in sex crime division. um, And then again, back out working in the suburbs um, where I spent about four years, I think, probably all up working in like robberies, um, crimes against people, like serious assaults, um, first response to things like you're doing drug investigations still, you're doing like the initial response to homicides, you're the kind of go-to to kind of get out there, make sure, lock it all down, and then if it's something that you're going to carry, you will, otherwise you might pass it off to like a specialist um, investigation unit. Um, so following some time out there, I then moved into our homicide squad. Um, so our homicide squad kind of covers the entire state. So if there's a murder in... Broome, which is the very northwest of the of the country, you'll get on a plane, you'll drive, and you'll you'll fly out there, and you'll do the the investigation out there. Um, so you're responsible for the entire state. Damn, how many how many homicide detectives do they have? So we were running at the time <coughs> I was there. Um, we had five teams, um, and it's kind of about between eight and twelve people, um, and they kind of ran in. Um, it's a very heavy, heavy rank structure um, in the homicide squad. So you'll have a, a senior sergeant who kind of looks after it. You might have two or three detective sergeants, and then you'll have maybe about 
between six and eight um, like detectives who kind of work underneath them. Um, so you had about yeah about about sixty people within that homicide squad. Okay, so the detect the detectives that actually are doing the going out and combing over all the evidence about about how many of those of the of the sixty. Oh, so per homicide, yeah. it's yeah. one team. Oh, damn. So, but you'll work with your kind of your local detectives in that area. So you rely heavily on pulling the resources together. Is a lot of uh, drug-related homicides. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily linked directly to like drug distribution, mm-hmm. but there's definitely a, a prevalence of drug use with most of the homicides. Family violence, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. heavy like family violence, even some mental health. Um, oh, know, definitely yeah. plays a part in it. So. You know, if you listen to these uh, these shows that we had, we we try to cast a wide net and um, variety in topics and people and professions. And but we do have an underlying theme of the exposure to trauma for first responders. And what we've seen, no matter where you're, police, fire, detective, Western Australian detective, mm-hmm. you you're going to be exposed to a lot of different trauma from a mental and physical aspect. Are there any homicide cases that you work that just just stick with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know everyone kind, everyone that I went to, um, a certain part of it always kind of sticks with you. Um, whether it's just kind of the how quickly things kind of get out of control, um, whether it's the victim or the suspect, um, and just the circumstances. Sometimes it's just you know someone's preying on another person, um, or it can just be just things got out of hand but i think it definitely i'd be lying if i said every every saying doesn't almost stick with you can't unsee things you know what i mean like yeah you can't unsee and you can't unhear things so i think it definitely sticks with you is there one case in particular that that you can kind of tell the listener about that that you were exposed to that just really stands out from the others yeah so it was actually my very first homicide that i went to um once once i got to the to the unit um and it was a it was in one of our kind of smaller towns, um, about an hour um, south of Perth, um, where there'd been like kind of a what we what we kind of ascertained throughout the investigation was just talking about the drug side of things. This was someone who heavy drug user had been on a what we call like a big bender, been up for days, um, abusing drugs, and he'd kind of put himself in that much of a state. He'd been almost put himself six months behind in his brain um, and went back to a set of apartments where he, he thought he lived at, um, went into a unit, um, which wasn't his, and it just was unfortunate that the lock on the door didn't work for that specific unit. Um, and there was a, a fella asleep on the couch, and he went and grabbed two knives, and in his back it went, and that was it. Um, and there were some more assaults that went on um, with the other occupants in there. So it was... Yeah, and I had the task of interviewing him and dealing with him as a suspect, which was, you know, I didn't quite, I think, at the initial arrest phase, kind of have an idea of his mental state from just the, the drug abuse that it had, because it was yeah interesting couple of hours trying to talk to him. So you had the, that's your first homicide you've ever, you ever worked? That was from, an, uh, from the investigative side of actually investigating the homicide. So when I was in the, the districts in the as like a like a first responder kind of detective, um, I kind of t- went out of my way to expose myself as much as I could. So if I heard on the radio, you know, we've got a serious assault, we've got a stabbing, um, you know, it could be a potential homicide. I was always the first one trying to race out there and, and kind of take control of the scene. So I've always enjoyed that kind of work. Um, 
But being a district detective, as soon as it's kind of confirmed homicide, it's the big dogs come in and, and they take over. And, and on scenes like that, that was the first one that you actually were kind of in charge with. With You had to put it together. So, what, so the way that we kind of work ours is we everyone gets what we call like a, a strategy to work with. So whether it be you're the suspect manager, you might be responsible for all the physical material and, you know, being that liaison with forensics and making sure everything's done. You've got, you know, witness managers responsible for kind of collating all the intelligence and all the all the witness statements. So for that one there, I was, I was purely responsible for dealing with the suspect kind of, mm whether it's interviewing, dealing with, you know, maybe the exhibits like his clothing, things like that. So that's that was where I was kind of thrown really into the taking charge of the prolonged part of the investigation. Was he still at the scene whenever the, yeah. the officer showed up? Yeah, so because it was an apartment complex, it was quite high up um, and he ended up scaling a window to kind of try and escape and get down to like another level. But by the time the the local place your, your patrol guys got there he was still inside um one of the units and they were able to kind of affect the arrest there and then and they just basically held him because and you had to how, how how long did it take you to get to that scene uh so that was i think it occurred from memory this has gone back a few years it was close to midnight uh when it went when it happened um and i think i got the call at about maybe one thirty in the morning um so then it was kind of like get everything together it's definitely this is a job for us um so i think we were down there about three in the morning so that one it sticks out to you other than being the first that you as a detective were were investigating and basically managing that type of he just basically goes on a drug-fueled rampage right pretty much and it was just the 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 victim and the secondary victims involved in that, it was just, it sticks out so much because it was just an unfortunate series of events, which, like I said, something from his minor the is... Door. Yeah, the, the door. The door being locking. unlocked. Yeah. Being able to get in the lift to even get up onto that floor was just, again, purely by chance. Um, so it was one of those ones where it was just, you know, unfortunately, you know, like it could the have perfect been, storm. It, it could have been avoided in so many... If, if this didn't occur, this wouldn't have happened. Yep. It just, like, it was a domino effect. Yeah, it was just everything, unfortunately, went right for him, went went wrong for, for everyone else. Well, especially stabbing scenes, they're, they're some of the most, the bloodiest, you know. Yeah, and, yeah um, it was um, pretty pretty hard for the, especially the, the secondary victims who were still inside there, having to witness that. Yeah. And obviously, you know, having to deal with him as well. So, and you, um, how long did you work in Homicide? Uh, so, about a year and a, Probably about a year and three quarters I was there. Okay. And what did you, where did you go after that? So now I kind of moved into more of the, the narcotics space. So I'd kind of done a bit of a bit of narcotics work when I was a district detective. Um, we obviously have responsibility for investigating, you know, domestic violence incidents, um, you know, robbery offences, volume crime stuff. Um, but I was drawn to the narcotics side of things. I really enjoyed the challenge of unlike the majority of offences where it's, you know, you're responding, you know, something's already happened. The narcotics aspect of it where they're taking steps to try and conceal what they're doing. They're not wanting to do it openly. So you're already kind of behind the eight ball with trying to catch them. Um, and just the different things you can employ, whether it's, you know, using things like surveillance, your telephone intercepts, you know, using undercover stuff. It was just a different kind of working atmosphere, which I was really drawn to and really enjoyed. For, as a homicide detective, would y'all wear like, suits is that is absolutely okay. yeah suit and tie and jacket yep. you see have you seen our homicide detectives here in dallas 
Did you, uh, did you ever get a chance I'll, to meet I'll any come of them? across one, yeah. Okay, yeah, uh, they're usually pretty, they're all dressed they're up. They're very snappy dresses. Yeah, yep. yeah, so that's how y'all were, and then you go from that to undercover work. Yeah, so then it was, you know, um, obviously you want to try and blend in as much as possible. You know, if you're out, you know, working narcotics cases, you don't want to be sitting in a suit, and especially if you're in a maybe not so... Mm, what's another nice way? Maybe a bit of a sketchy area. You know, if you're sitting there in like a three-piece yeah, we'll, suit. Yeah, we'll let you use sketchy. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. In a three-piece suit, you know, you're going to stick out pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, you might get robbed. Yeah, good chance. <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of got into the, the drug investigations early on, kind of moved into homicide, and then went back to that kind of aspect of it and then ended up working in um, what's called our organized crime squad. Um, which no longer exists now. We've all fallen under the umbrella of the Transnational Serious and Organised Crime Squad. Um, but prior to that, I spent my time at, yeah, the Organised Crime Squad, which is does similar work to what the DA guys do here and what you're kind of, you guys do on the ground um, for like DPD with is drug distribution locally, you know, take it as far as you can. Um, dealing with anyone from, you know, especially the Organised Crime Squad, we call it OCS. We're trying to work on that upper echelon, those kind of top tiered, drug dealers rather than you know dealing with someone who's selling you know packets from their house we're trying to go a few rings up there so that's where i kind of started to really the more of the source you're yeah, going at the yeah. source yeah so did you meet ben that whenever this new opportunity come up to come to the united states i mean how how did you how did both of you, i mean this is kind of for both of y'all how did y'all find out about this and how are y'all approached so i actually i think i was a bit behind because there was a an email broadcast that kind of came out to everyone about it. You know, like you hear little whispers and rumors about things. It was the same when the transnational serious organized crime started. There was kind of some some murmurs about it to start with, and then it wasn't until you know how much do you believe in the whispers and rumors. So there was there was talk. We'd kind of heard bits and pieces about it, um, but then I was behind because I still remember being in in. Probably the deleted that initial email like I do. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah just straight to the yeah, yeah, yeah straight yeah. to the delete box. But I was in an email and people were talking about it. That's uh, no, why I was in the in the lift at work and people were talking about it. And I was just like, I was kind of a bit behind me. I'm like, I'm clearly missing something here. It wasn't until I kind of got back into the office and had a look. And it was like, yeah, this is something that's that's actually going ahead and they've put out an expression of interest to the whole agency. Yeah, and the same for me. So I saw that email. Um, it went out like statewide and we do get a lot of those. Did you think it was spam? When it yeah, came? at okay. first, quite often you might. I'm like, and then you read it and think three months. Like, that's incredible that it, you can get to America. Uh, and then obviously where we were, we thought oh, we're going to have to apply, um, but to imagine that you actually be successful because I knew there's a lot of really good investigators that also were going to apply. Um, and you, you know, you knew you had to sort of go up almost a competition against them. You had to apply, yeah. do your expression of interest. Take out some competition, maybe or some, <laughs> throw some, uh, some bad, uh, shit emails at them or, or go behind. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. Can you tap into Yeah. 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 <laughs> What was your uh, what was your impression of the United States before you got here? Well, for me, I've never been to the United States, um, so it's always sort of on my bucket list. Always wanted to do a holiday, um, but I didn't really know anything about Dallas or Texas. I guess you probably know the main like L.A., New York. You hear about all that, yeah. Um, but yeah, I had no idea about Texas. Did you start googling Tex- Dallas, yeah. Texas? Okay, yeah. Yep. A lot of as you said, a lot of Cowboys references. Yeah. Um, J.R. Ewan, you know yeah. who that is? No, I don't. Okay, no. well, Google J.R. Ewan after this, and you'll 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 hear all you'll you'll know all you need to know about Dallas. Okay, <laughs> I will. Yeah. Um, so for me, I'd, I'd actually been quite lucky. I've spent a fair bit of time like traveling uh, the state since about 
2014, I think it was the, oh, 2010, I came over for, um, for a wedding just very briefly. And then after that, I was kind of a bit kind of hooked on just how different each city is, even, you know, each city within each state can be so varying. So this was, by the time I actually came here, this was my fifth time, this will be my fifth time to the States. Um, and I think my third time to Dallas. Um, so I'd spent a bit of time here before. Um, a bit of an avid barbecue fan, so it's kind of like if you're into barbecue, you got to make sure you come to Texas. What's your favorite barbecue? Uh, I'm still a big fan of the beef short ribs or like your your beef ribs. It's kind of okay. you know it's an easy one. Like I do enjoy doing like a brisket, the challenge of it because it's if you do it wrong, you you certainly know about no, it. No, it sucks yeah, if you don't get it right. Yeah, there's yeah. no getting around it. Um, so it's kind of yeah, it's kind of lucky that to get the opportunity to come back and knowing that I kind of had already a bit of familiarity. I've spent a lot of time driving around here, so it's not such a big jump to all of a sudden go, you know, get on the wrong side, right side, depending on who you're talking to. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely struggled with that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> no, I, I, I've talked about it before. I was in uh, in Ireland, and it's pretty terrifying for me just to – I'm, I'm – I'm, very lucky that I didn't take off any mirrors going down the road because <laughs> yeah. they're very I mean there's some aggressive drivers and the uh, traffic control devices are not as uh, as greatly used there they are here in Dallas it's a guide yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a guide yeah those roundabouts are wearing yeah. me out too oh yeah, yeah just drive a kilometer and a half and I go through like seven roundabouts yeah, yeah. you don't see that we've seen a lot of cars on fire here as well whatever reason Dallas seems, yeah, always seems to be it's a damn hot shit just, bur- <laughs> shit just burns up here yeah. <laughs> spontaneous combustion yeah, just spon- yeah. <laughs> that's what Texas is known yeah. for exploding cars so whenever you heard about this new initiative to come to the United States did that excite you like oh damn I gotta get I gotta get on this oh 100% yeah especially yeah. realizing it was Dallas like because I'm I've I'd love coming to Texas like I said, I've spent a bit of time in Texas before did you show up to the interview in like a Dallas Cowboy gear and a I might have had some boots on. Yeah, I had there you go. I wish. Yeah. Um, no, nah, so it definitely helped having, like, I think, a bit of a, a, a bit of familiarity with the place because it's, especially landing here, like it's, you know, as much as we are, like, you know, two people here together, it's it can be pretty isolating when yeah. you're, you're away from, you know, your home life and all your support systems. Um, so it's kind of good. It wasn't so completely unnatural coming here and, you know, just something simple like going to the shops and trying to get groceries. It's like where do you go for groceries here? You know, like at least we kind of had like a bit of a starting point. I feel, I feel that way when I walked to the other end of headquarters and isolated. <laughs> so I can imagine coming all the way, yeah. you know, different time zone. Uh, so Ben, you had never been here. And, and I want I want to get into how many people you said, uh, superintendent said that 19 people basically met the criteria to apply of the 19. How many actually had been to the United States? Um, I'm not entirely yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not, sure who all the people were that applied mm-hmm. um but yeah i think probably a number haven't um, yeah yeah i think it's a lot of people obviously want to come over here or they may have been to other places but not necessarily texas okay have you been taking selfies around and sending them back to the guys that didn't make it and it's kind of like a hey <laughs> you know I mean? i'm better than you yeah. it's yeah. terrible here you yeah. wouldn't want yeah. to be here anyway. yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sign up for the next one just to spare you yeah, from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i'll be yeah. the motto <laughs> all right Y'all go through the selection process, and how long did that take, y'all? And how many interviews is it just? Uh, so it went on. They sort of give you a couple of weeks after they put out the application. Uh, so you got to write up your expression of interest. Uh, they obviously reviewed that, and um, they narrowed it down to I think six, six or seven people did interviews. Uh, so with that, we had actually had some DEA come over. Um, so ASAC Guy Baker, who's with us here, yep. uh, he had the hard task of coming over to Australia and interviewing us. 
uh, as well as some other um, DEA from the Far East region. Um, so yeah, so we did an interview process and then it was sort of about a week later after they went through that that um, we were told. Well, how was that feeling knowing you were actually, this was happening, you're going through this and here we go? Yeah, I, I think you, you kind of mentally prepare for, for both if you're not going to get it, you know, or if you go into it, but it definitely changed when it was, this is actually happening, you know, like it was a bit of like a roller coaster of like excitedness, but then also kind of like, what oh, am I getting into? Yeah. yeah, kind of like, you know, like, cause it is, it is on paper, it didn't seem, you know, I was telling everyone like three months will go by so quickly. It'll be, it'll be a breeze. It'll be like a blink and it's gone. And it has to be fair. But at the same time, like it's a long time away from home. You know what I mean? So it's like, it was a realization of like, and it doesn't only affect me. I've got like a wife back home. Um, okay. Life goes on for her and she's got to kind of deal with, you know, me not being there as well. So it's, it was kind of ecstatic and then like a, oh shit, what have I, what have I actually committed to? And then back to being like, all right, cool. This is, this is what we both kind of agreed to. Cause obviously you want to speak to them about, you know, disappearing for three months. Yeah. No. <laughs> so Dave, just for the listeners, so they get to keep these uh, interest rates. Dave, your, your wife is not in law enforcement. She's, but she works in the public corruption yeah. realm. Yeah. yeah. So she works okay. in, for an anti-corruption agency back home. Um, so they're called the corruption and crime commission. Um, and they're responsible for all public sector serious misconduct and corruption. Um, if it goes into the criminal side, um, they do some work with with the WA Police, but they also have oversight over the WA Police Force as well. And you call them Mrs. or uh, Miso, Mrs. 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 Okay, yeah. they they actually visited y'all when you were here, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Okay, yeah. yeah so my girlfriend, she's actually a police officer police officer as well okay um yes, you, so you want to give her a shout out or is it yes okay. jamie lee i'm sure she'll she'll have a listen yes um so you damn she better yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, share it with her friends yeah so she even got the email herself you know like because it went to all the police officers oh man uh so i got a phone call from her and she's very supportive she's like you have to apply you have to go you know so that's good yep i did almost didn't expect that um, but <laughs> yeah. okay. very good. Sort as a holiday. Yeah, yeah. 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 The house has been very clean while I've been away. I bet. So, whenever y'all just talk about y'all came together over here, right? When y'all first got here, uh, special agent charge is kind of talking about y'all just getting off the plane and uh, with that jet lag mm. and and talk about that. So I mean, we it's there's no getting around. It's there's no quick way to kind of get from australia to here and especially being perth as well so we've got to go perth to sydney first which is about four hours and then sydney to dallas we luckily get a direct flight and that was about 15 maybe a little over 15 hours maybe 15 and a half hours so we're feeling like surprisingly good because we got here about four o'clock on like a sunday and it's surprisingly fresh um asap baker took us out with one of the gs's here as well um and it was feeling surprisingly good, but then the next day it kind of hit us a bit. And that was the plan. It was just like, let's just try and make it through to about nine, nine o'clock-ish, because then at least we can try and get like a decent sleep, because the first night's sleep, you're kind of in and out. Um, but then as soon as there was an opportunity, we kind of did a lot of the running around, trying to get the, you know, our accommodation sorted, getting hire cars, trying to meet everyone. And it's just like, you know, you're meeting like 50 people and trying to remember everyone's name. So it was pretty mentally exhausting. But then there was an opportunity where they were like, hey, we've, we've got an op that's about to, to happen. Do you want to get on board? And it was like, you'd be mad not to. You know, that's what we're here for. We're here to try and soak up as much as we can. So uh, we both just jumped at it and it ended up, you know, spiraling out and we were doing storage units and ripping 30-odd keys of, of meth out of a, a warehouse. So it was good. So it was that 30, 30 keys of, of meth. That was a pretty good... 
pretty good hit from y'all for y'all. What, what kind of hits were y'all used to as being quote unquote good hits? So in a thing, so it varies because it's the so we'll talk about kind of the pricing. So like Australia is like a yes. a low usage but high profit country for for drugs. We don't have the same population um, anywhere near as what the states does. I think it's what like three hundred fifty million maybe. Um, so like our state alone is about two point seven mil. Um, so a kilo of meth back home um, pre-COVID, and this was like kind of like what drug dealers would call like the good days, would be like you could pick up a kilo for 90,000 Australian. 90,000. 90,000 Australian. Um, COVID kind of hit and that jumped all the way up to, you know, at some points people were asking 450,000 for a single kilo. And most of the time that had been, you know, jumped on and broken down because um, everyone was trying to still turn a buck because it got hard. It got real hard for drugs to come into into the country. Um, but it's kind of settled back down, but it's still, you know, ranging anywhere from between 150 up to about 200 a kilo. Um, so it's, it's, you can catch someone with say like five to 10 keys, like back home. That's, that's a, that's a great hit. You get one kilo. That's, that's a great hit. Cause that's a huge financial loss, um, for the distributors. And they know that, you know, that they're switched on in the sense that they don't want to be caught sitting on that much because of the penalties that we have. And it's viewed so harshly by the courts someone moving say two kilos in a week in Perth they're not a nobody you know they're they're someone with some serious connections you can't just roll in and go yeah I've got a couple of grand laying around can someone sort me out with a key you've got to have the right connections there and Perth being Perth the way it is everyone knows everyone so it's like if you're not vouched for and you know the criminal fraternity know each other well yeah so and on that I'd like to say so if you get found with more than an ounce of methamphetamine so more than 28 grams um, our sentencing you can actually get life imprisonment for that which really is not much methamphetamine and you can do life imprisonment. Yeah. Boy, here in Dallas, man, if you, if that was here, it'd be a, the streets would kind of be clean. I mean, or the violence against yeah. police officers would go way up. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good. So Perth probably has the strongest sort of penalties for drugs, I'd say, in the whole of Australia. So it's really good. So what did y'all think when y'all saw the 30 kilos on the first uh, less than day here? Yeah, and, and the, the major thing was it wasn't like a long-term operation they've been working on. It was something short and sharp that they'd done, uh, and they just kind of took a risk, pulled someone over, searched a storage unit, and it all happened in a couple of hours, and it wasn't it wasn't a major thing. That was just, oh, you know, it's just a Monday night. Um, we've, still yeah. got, we've still got a week to show you. So and they just moved on, and I've, since then I've seen that, the high pace that everyone works at. Uh, it's just really incredible to see. Yeah, it's, it, it shit can just unfold very quickly. And, um, you know, we had on, I, I mentioned before, we had on former uh, Miami Metro Dade PD back in the 80s and 90s, the cocaine cowboy era. Mm. And I asked him what his biggest cocaine bust was, and he said uh, 10,000 kilos. And I was, oh, my God. You know, yeah, and he said they would get 500 kilos uh, just just routinely and flip that for – for you know uh, a thousand kilos i'm just oh my god i just can't imagine that i can't imagine that money Uh, imagine what that would be worth and (laughs) well yeah so coke coke's even more expensive okay again because it's just the way that we're kind of where our drugs come from um i know superintendent hutch spoke about it before but obviously the the close proximity to southeast asia we get a lot a lot of it coming out of that kind of region but we've also seen like an increase in you know mexican meth that's starting to to make an appearance but heroin Heroin, we again out of that kind of southeast region, yeah. and again going up to the Middle East. So something new that when we got here was everyone was talking about, you know, black tar. Like, and that was it was an alien kind of thing. Um, 
and then we've been lucky enough to get on a, a few operations where they're getting it and it's just like if anyone saw that back home they'd just be like i don't know what that is like that's that's not drugs but just the smell of it the look of vinegar, it vinegar that strong yeah vinegar. there's yeah. no getting around i think you smell that once and you kind of anytime you smell it again you'll be like yeah there's there's hammer here well even the cocaine has a smell to it yeah you stand absolutely. outside of a door and say, Damn, yeah fertilizer <laughs> yeah um so after that, you kind of start getting settled in with the groups. Can you yeah. kind, of, kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So I've, I spent predominantly most of my time um, with one of the enforcement groups here. Um, who are, you know, their time in the office would be absolutely minimal. They're, they're out on the road every day. Um, there's kind of no... Um, it's interesting to see because no one's willing to kind of go like, no, I've got stuff on. Everyone's willing just to jump on and help out, whether that's doing the surveillance, whether or not it's doing covering your source meets. They're kind of, everyone's just out all the time. Um, and it's only out of necessity that they kind of come back in. So I spent a bit of time with one of the two different enforcement groups here. I spent a bit of time out um, with the hider groups, um, looking at the airports and the kind of the way that they manage their investigations. Um, and from the enforcement side, that's pretty much where I've spent most of my time. So y'all uh, met Sergeant Greg Garcia? Yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. I've done a lot of work with Greg. Greg's a good friend of mine. He yeah. listens to these, and uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I was hanging out with him Saturday night. Yeah. Great yeah. guy. He is very good. Did you know he's a doctor? I did not. Yeah, you have to ask him about it. He's kept that very quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the guidelines when y'all started here, y'all had some rules that have kind of just, well, they just didn't fit. Like, mm. no police authority, yep. right? Uh yeah, wait for the scene to be clear before going to the scene, going to the set, right? You then sure they weren't subjected to any primary witness and operations they were required to testify, correct? Mm -hmm. So those are all part of original guidelines whenever uh is there some other ones that y'all were basically some ground rules when y'all got here? Yeah, I'd say uh so as far as like surveillance and things like that. Um I know ASAC Baker sort of said he wants to stay back so we weren't right in the front. Um, but I think probably within the first couple of days, he quite often uh, listens to the, the radio and you can't really hide the Australian accents when they're calling <laughs> the surveillance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you can't just drop your accent like Mel Gibson can? And, uh, no, we can try. But, okay. uh, he Hugh Jackman. It, okay. yeah. Unlucky for us, he's, uh, he's always listening to the radio and I think he's picked us quite very quickly. <laughs> that we're you can't out do your things. David Roach impression? No. Okay. <laughs> Um, I really want to hear the 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 bad American accent. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I kind of do also. Who who can do the best bad American accent here? I think that's definitely Ben. I was going to say the other way. No, let's see. <laughs> someone has to. Yeah. Uh, I've been crap. trying to roll out howdy and I sound weird. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, what did you say? What did you say? Howdy, howdy. <laughs> not bad, not bad. So like we tried, we tried to abide by the rules, but. Um, I don't know. It's not a spectator sport, so it was kind of like first opportunity. It was kind of like, you know, we don't need, like, obviously we've got to be safe here. Like, there's no getting around that because we're not armed. We don't have any authority. But at the same time, we're kind of like, we're here to see and learn as much as possible. And the only way to do that is kind of at a safe distance, get in there and get amongst it. So, so your perception of American policing, um, y'all have, the y'all kind of watch shows, uh, TV shows or movies? Uh, are y'all fans of the Absolutely. theater? Okay, so what's portrayed in movies and TV, and then the majority kind of have a perception of what American policing was going to be like. Yeah, like I think potentially, like we've obviously worked with the DEA on quite a few jobs, so we we knew that quite well, um, just being partners with them in previous jobs. 
But as far as like local police, I, I didn't really know a lot other than, yeah, you know, what you see on Netflix. Um, sure the, the Wire, that the show wire. The Wire. Yeah. I, the I other guys. I actually haven't seen that yet. Everyone's told me. Dude, okay. I know, the, that's what I've, I've said. said it before. The Wire is the most accurate cop show, especially when you deal with street level uh, narcotics dealings. And it really, you should watch that. Yeah, it's on my list. I've been told it's, it's the great. greatest. Yeah. Well, you know the first forty-eight. Everyone's seen that. The sort of typical oh, yeah. homicide detective over here. <laughs> yeah, um, that yeah. We've we've uh, we've had on some uh, homicide detectives. We had on on Andrew Isom, and uh, and I'm I'm friends with pretty much all everybody on that show. And uh, Eddie Abara, I eventually want to get him on too. Uh, but yeah, that's a popular show. Yeah. Did y'all watch Dallas SWAT? Or remember that old Dallas SWAT show? That was probably before y'all's time. Yeah, maybe before. <laughs> yeah, go back and watch that. If, if you want to get giggle so <laughs> so once you got over here though did did you have much dealings with uh like the street level i mean the the y'all they deal in weight they don't deal in most for the most part nickel and dime stuff did, have y'all been exposed at all to like david have you have you put up have you have they seen like true south dallas dope dealing uh i think we took ben down to south dallas a couple times um I mean, I think the probably the lowest that Ben probably got down to in our group was probably multi-ounce guys uh, on a flip. Um, but, I mean, we were definitely in South Dallas, Pleasant Grove, uh, a fair bit down in God's country, southeast. <laughs> well, their accent fits in down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they didn't stand out one bit. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah, there's certainly a few times on surveillance, you know, because um, we had our own car here. Uh, so driving around a few of the neighborhoods and not knowing them all and you start realizing oh maybe i shouldn't be parked up here on my own <laughs> and maybe not have you know be you should be armed yeah. driving down in the parts of south dallas <laughs> so uh, you know we we've all started we started off in in southeast and yeah the the level of violence that goes on in that part of dallas is it is like a, it, what you see in the movies and i'm telling you have you have you seen the wire david no, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never actually sat down and Man, gone through the whole series. Man, you really need to watch it, and it portrays not only the the actual suspects and the dealers, it, the police and the investigative tactics, but it also the political side of uh, policing in a major city. It's yeah. set in Baltimore, so if y'all want to, if you know, you want to get a good flavor of like South Dallas or, or any major city horrible part of town usa you watch the wire and it will give you a good uh sample size of what it's like good pretty good and police and just how they you know the political side was really interesting to me and i wondered why how they knew certain little things that went on uh and then i found out an ex homicide detective in baltimore was one of the co-writers so that's it's it's very authentic yeah representative yeah yeah it, it really is <laughs> And so, now seeing seeing things that from like the political side being up in headquarters and hearing why something makes the news, stuff starts happening magically. You know, yeah. you see where, yeah. What have you guys done in Dallas that you didn't think you were going to do? Or even Texas, I, I see you guys have traveled quite a bit. I'm sure you weren't planning on heading to another country altogether either. Um, but what kind of stuff did you guys get into as far as that? Um, so, yeah, definitely the – the extradition process we got involved in was, you know, it was almost like a bit, a bit of a dream. Like, you know, if we can make it happen, it would be good. And it wasn't even something that we were kind of even thinking that we'd get involved with. Um, so we were kind of lucky enough that while we were here, there was an extradition from Guatemala, um, of five suspects back to like the Eastern District of Texas. Um, so getting to go out on that, flying down with, you know, the DEA, 
um, spending some time with the agents down there. Not anyone's attached to the to the field office, I guess it would be, um, but the investigators and just kind of seeing how they structure those international cases because it's, as we spoke about, we're trying to raise our kind of level of, you know, rather than just stopping in WA or even just, you know, at a national level because we'll extradite people from different states but it's when it's that offshore level, like how is it you kind of approach that and how is it you kind of structure your investigations and building that kind of brief of evidence, that case against them so that you you can get them back. And they don't think that anywhere in particular, regardless of where you are, is kind of like a safe haven for them and they can kind of get away with it. So that was that was something I had no, I didn't think I'd yet to be involved in. And I'm pretty sure um, we'll be the only people in WA Police Force that have ever been to Guatemala for an extradition. So... Yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, some of these guys were like high-level cartel members uh, and just hearing the stories of their involvement and how they're affecting America, but they'd never even stepped foot in America. Um, so it's pretty good to see the guys can investigate that and actually bring them to justice in America. Like, it's really good. Those tentacles are far-reaching. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can reach all the way from yep. Guatemala to the United States and can have an effect on us. Yeah. Yep. So you talk about the, can you talk about the management conference that y'all went to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we were lucky enough to go down to San Antonio. Uh, we sat Chavez basically had a, a manager's conference there. So it was all the group supervisors uh, in the whole Dallas field division, uh, so including the Oklahoma officers. Uh, so we went for a whole week, uh, and we were just basically exposed, sitting with all the supervisors, uh, went through a number of sessions, uh, sort of presenting, the FBI presented there, uh, and it was really good. It was good to see. They did um, quite a bit on welfare as well. Um, as we've spoken about, I can see that's quite a high priority for the DEA, um, like it is for us. And to be honest, it came across as it's very similar. Like, just because you guys are cops in America, you're very same as cops in Australia. I, I think we're all the same. Uh, and it's very similar programs that you guys do um, with as far as like the welfare uh, and looking out, out for everyone. Um, so there, it was a really good experience. Uh, we presented on sort of an investigation we'd run uh, and just... WA police in general because um, a lot of people didn't really know much you know you might you might know about Australia but you'll know Sydney or Melbourne um, Perth kind of gets forgotten sometimes um, so we had a great time uh, along the river walk in San Antonio there uh, and yeah did you try that Mexican food down there on we that did. river walk? okay yes yeah. very good it's hot down there <laughs> for the listeners we're recording in uh, the middle of July and we're not sure where this is going to air, but <clears throat> they're getting exposure to this nice Texas heat. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's How does no that feel? It. Well, like we kind of, you know, being from it, like Australia is known as like a hot country itself. Okay. But, and it was, you know, it talks about like the different heats and we're, we're shockers for it back home. We're like Perth's a dry heat. Um but there's no getting around how hot it is here and it's relentless. Like it's, it'll be similar temperatures to what we get, but the humidity and it's just like, I'm an early riser. I'm up at five in the morning and it's like 98 degrees. I'm just like, when, when do you get the let up? Like, when does that kind of, when does it get cool here in the middle of the night? And it just doesn't No, around February. Yeah. yeah. February. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely not sweater weather. So can you talk about this 2000 uh, plus kilo case? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's still an ongoing um, investigation that's going on. So, but essentially, there was there was an opportunity to work alongside um, the DEA from the the field office out in Australia. So we have a couple of a couple of different agents. We've got obviously got a country attaché, and there's some agents and some supervisors out there as well. So it was um, they approached us with 
what was going to be you know an opportunity to maybe do this investigation um, and run it from from WA because there was an importation of you know drugs coming to coming to WA to Western Australia. Um, so that involved you know coming out of Latin America. There was a multi-ton um, shipment of cocaine coming. So I was essentially working alongside them, um, which was something we really hadn't hadn't done a whole lot of. We've, we've done work with with DA before and their you know their special operations division, but nothing really in that kind of size or at, at that kind of investigation. Rather, we kind of assist and help with theirs. This was like this is coming to you guys. So if you want it, you need to need to jump on it now. And then that's what we ended up doing. Um, so it's still kind of ongoing at the moment. Um, some of the offenders have been arrested already. There was about 12 offenders um, in Western Australia that are before the courts at the moment. Um, but as you said, those tentacles being, you know, all over, you know, we're, we're not stopping just because we've got the people in Australia, the people in Western Australia. We're still kind of looking further out to, you know, who's coordinating it, who's offshore, you know, whether that includes throughout South America, if there's organised crime identities in America that we can look at. We're trying to cast that net just so like what the DA does where there's no there's no place safe just because you know you're pulling the strings from another country doesn't mean that we're not going to come after you and if we can extradite you to Australia and put you in Australian jail like perfect speaking of that what are, what are the Australian jails like the prison systems like over there crowded <laughs> like yeah. anywhere I guess um so we're one of the things we've kind of learned coming here is obviously the difference in the way everything's set up, you know, law enforcement and especially like working with not only task force officers, the DA agents, you know, it's remarkable how similar we are as organisations and things work, but it's just the, I guess, the breakdown and the framework with the different kind of jailing systems that you guys have here. So we've got one, we've got one government body that looks after all the actual jails, which is our Department of Corrective Services. So we run like a temporary watch house, we would call it, which would be like a overnight kind of jail, which is run by the police. Um, so that's when if someone's arrested and they've got to go to court the next day, as soon as they're kind of in that court system, if they're getting released to freedom, then they are released on bail or um, then, you know, that's that's a separate aspect. But if they're going to get remanded in custody, then they go to one of our jails. Um, so in the metro area... I can think of um, we got a few. We probably got about five. I think would yeah, be about. We got some larger, right. like custodial ones, and then all the way down to like minimum security, uh, where you could have almost like a prison farm, uh, sort of towards the, the lower end of their prison sentence. Yeah, and as well as a lot of regional prisons as well. Um, so some people might serve their time uh, in a regional town they're from, or they might just end up getting transferred out there. And so I think some of those ones might be slightly harsher, just given the climate of especially the, the regional areas. You know, a, a Perth, you know, a jail that's set in Perth would be very different from, you know, a jail that's in Roburn, which is um, one of our rural communities, like quite far north, um, whether it be the demographic of the prisoners, the temperature, like the climate up there is completely different. They're even more isolated because friends and family can't kind of come and visit them. So it can be, depending on where they are, it can be pretty pretty horrific for them so like prison you know that we have some people here in the united states that they they do, they do crimes and they really don't fear the prison system and you got hardcore ones nobody wants to be locked away but as far as you know there's no more alcatrazes or yeah. uh, you know that places that people just are terrified of yeah i think you know speaking with different suspects um i've certainly learned there are people who fear it absolutely they'll, they'll do anything they can look at you know trying to escape offshore if they need to 
but there's still certain offenders where it's, that's all they know. They've got friends in there. They've got family in there. Um, it's not it's not that scary a thing for them. Yeah, they don't want to have their freedom taken away. But compared to, you know, the majority of the population, it's not as daunting because they're, they're used to the system. Are there prison gangs? A lot of prison gangs in there? I don't know if there's necessarily like a formalized like gang structure. You still definitely have, as we said, like we call them the bikey gangs. Um They've got a prevalence, you know, they they stick together, you know, the different chapters and the different clubs will kind of, you know, have certain areas and they need to be mindful about how they're housing them. Um, and then there's a lot of like familiar kind of relationships and familiar kind of ties um, or like racial groups that will kind of stick together as well. Fascinating. I, I just, you know, I've, I've always wondered what the difference is because other than going to Mexico and Ireland on vacation, I have no idea how the judicial system works and and how much support y'all would have from a prosecutorial standpoint, and then also the incarceration uh, of how that is, and it's, it's fascinating. So I want to get into y'all went to Oklahoma City to do a, yeah, a lab takedown. Y'all yeah. aren't really used to that kind of. No. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So look, lucky we haven't, and I really hope we never do. But we just don't have the fentanyl sort of epidemic that America has, um, which is really good for us. Um, so we've always heard of fentanyl, and we've heard of you know the dangers around it. Um, but before coming here, neither of us had ever been exposed to any fentanyl seizures. Um, so so we went along to Oklahoma. Uh, with the, I guess the clandestine drug lab team here, uh, and they've been running an investigation in Oklahoma into some pill presses that have been coming in. Um, so we were there when they executed a search warrant, uh, and they located I think it was three or four pill presses, and it was basically an active fentanyl lab uh, that we were able to see how they're importing the fentanyl powder in, uh, and then they were pressing their own fentanyl pills. Um, I, I know for us, we'd always thought how dangerous fentanyl was that you couldn't get anywhere near it. Um, but we've kind of learned that with good practice, you can, especially the pills, you can just safely seize them. Um, but then there is obviously a lot of dangers with that powder getting airborne. Um, so the DEA's let us get a lot of exposure to that. Um, so I know that's one thing we can bring back uh, to Australia. Um, th- there has been some maybe border seizures of fentanyl, but it's just not prolific within the community. Well, hopefully it, it won't. Get yeah, to that, I really hope so. you know, hell, there was a time where it wasn't for us either until now we have a problem. Yeah. It's a major problem. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty deadly. Mm. So you talked about going to Guatemala, and you're, you're very used to dealing with suspects and suspects interviews, right? And uh, you did some source interviews. Can you all kind of talk about when you all y'all did some of those or the differences from what you all were doing over there to – being part of this initiative yes it's been really good to be involved in a lot of like the source conversations met with a lot of sources um to see how the i guess the inner workings of the dea and how quickly they do manage them uh and they get really good results out of them um and as well as interviewing is a little bit different uh we tend to audio record all of our interviews uh, as well as our search warrants so our search warrants in australia everything's recorded um, from the start to the finish the seizure of everything um, so here things are done a lot quicker obviously because <laughs> stopping to film everything takes a lot of time um, but I think the actual techniques and the way that the police here speak to the suspects it's similar as I said the policing's all very universal um, it is it's just good to see here the, the fast rate I think that the guys work at and that's that's a big one of the biggest takeaways for y'all is just the fast pace and how 
quickly it can unfold. Yeah, keeping you know things dynamic and fluid because you've got to be able to react fast to what's going on to kind of capitalize the most on it. Um, and it's just, I guess, the framework that's different from here compared to Australia. We're just kind of governed by different legislation. So although we do almost identical, the same processes, it just kind of takes us a little bit longer. But coming here and seeing how quickly things are turned around and decisions are made and, you know, if you are recruiting an informant, you know, getting them working straight away, it's, it's certainly something that we're taking back with us to go like, well, we could do a lot better in that sense and, you know, get get the ball rolling quicker, be prepared for it, you know. Um, it's not that we don't, we're not thinking of that, but it's kind of, we almost aren't set up for it at the moment to go, right, they're on board, let's go to work straight away. But that's definitely something that we've, we've learned this is so effective here um, in dealing with the narcotics and the investigations that um, we'd be crazy not to go, we can make it quicker back home. Well, at least prepare for it in case mm. you do need something like this and take a more of a proactive, aggressive approach on certain cases, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been, you know, we've, we're not, you know, new to the source game. We're not new to, you know, handling and tasking sources, but it's just about seeing how it's done maybe more efficiently and more effective to really benefit your investigations, um, which is the whole reason why we're here to kind of go like, you know, what do we do well? What do we, maybe what do we do not so well? Um, and getting to work with the DA um, and even just like partnering up with some of your, like, your local like sheriffs or different PDs and seeing how everyone's kind of taking that approach um, kind of really instills that, you know, we've, we've got to kind of maybe change the way we do things and then start doing better as well. Well, that's just the way we, I mean, we don't know any better. Yeah. And it's like before you came over here, you didn't know any better. I mean, if we were to go over there and spend 90 days with y'all, we would pick up on on practices and techniques that we'd never considered. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we were saying before, like, you know, like drug investigations, like, you know, narcotic investigations are pretty standard across the board. You know, you can't really reinvent the wheel too much. There's obviously different methodologies that you can kind of employ. Um but it's the playing field for us, which I think is is very different to say what you guys deal with. Obviously, you guys have the land border um, where a lot of it's coming up through um, through south, like through Mexico. Where an island, it's coming in either via it's got to come via sea or it's got to come via air. So it's again, we're kind of on a, a different playing field. But just how our, our crooks operate, even with the stuff around phones and and who's willing to go necessarily hands on with fifty kilos, who's willing to sit on fifty kilos is it's just kind of wrapping our head around like this is what works here how can we kind of make that fit best for back home because it is slightly different we're still doing the same things but it's just kind of like let's make it match our suspects and our targets let's make it match to to you know our legislative framework that we've got to deal with and our policies and procedures do you find that because you guys only have your one police department over there the the large one that things work a little bit easier because it's consistent whereas with us we've got guys on a task force that are working with guys from other departments and other agencies all the way around yeah and so some of our stuff gets a little bit convoluted there i think it's definitely a benefit just being the one state police force um it's incredibly impressive to see the deconfliction process here um because it's just not something we have like you know we, we've got other enforcement agencies back home that we do need to deconflict with but it's it took me a little while to get my head around the the pd's the counties, the DPS, the state police, and 
how everyone's kind of got their finger in everything, you know, and that's why you need that deconfliction process. Whereas we're quite lucky in the sense that the police in Perth City, where I am, it's the same guys, same uniforms, same systems, same intelligence databases, you know, an 18-hour drive away. And if we need to go up, it's just a matter of just getting on a plane. I can walk in there and everyone's there working together. So I think it definitely is a benefit to us um, and the way that we can kind of approach investigations. Yeah, but and I think seeing like the, the way the strike force model works here, it's more on maybe a federal level that I see how really good it is because um, we do have a lot of different federal agencies. Um, but to see them literally sitting in a desk next to each other, being able to talk about jobs and work together, I think that's really good. Um, so that's something definitely we'd like to you know have more of um, as opposed to the state level where we're all one. So just to kind of clarify what that strike force model is, um, it's a combination of not only state and local agencies, but also federal agencies being, like in our case, DEA, FBI, the U.S. Marshals, uh, ATF, HSI, yeah. all under one umbrella. Um, and, I mean, that's that's a concept that is really brand new or newer, uh, especially to North Texas. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I would, I would assume that you guys don't have that uh, to where you, you need to pool all those resources. It's just being just one agency, it's all in-house for you. Yeah, correct. Yeah, at the state level, yeah. And I say that is really good that you literally can make a phone call to a friend you know, another investigator, another agency, or you can just walk next door. Uh, and I can see how that's getting a lot of jobs done, you know, because of how close you guys are working. All right, I want to get back into the conversion labs because, you know, I, I was told that you guys, that's really not, it's really not too prevalent over there. No. So we the kind of um, clandestine laboratories we get were more from the manufacturing from the, you know, things like the pseudoephedrine uh, and, you know, getting it from the raw product and, and creating the methamphetamine from there. So one of the groups we spent a lot of time with was um, the clandestine laboratory team. Um, and something that we've, we're certainly taking back with us is just what we've seen is the, the conversion labs where... The meth is already concealed within some kind of, you know, whether it be a liquid, whether it be, you know, there's numerous ways that, that we've seen that the way they're doing it um, is it's not something we've seen back home where they're converting the meth from, say, you know, if it's soaked in a material, whether or not it's, you know, um, I'm aware of cases back home where we've come across um whether it be clothing, textiles, where the methamphetamine is soaked into that material, but a lot of the time they just don't know what to do with it um, because there's there's never been a necessity for it because we get the raw products, we get the crystallized methamphetamine landing. That's how it comes. So, But it's definitely something that we've got to look into and we're going to be taking back with us just because it's an area that definitely could be exploited by using these cover loads and setting up the conversion laboratories. And we've just seen the amount of output that these things can have. You know, they can pump out hundreds of kilos if they're not kind of gotten on top of quickly. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You guys came over and were saying that you've never experienced one personally. And, you know, there's some weeks where we're hitting three or four a week here in Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the average size here is anywhere between 50 all the way up to – you know, I think we did 300 on Friday. Um, yeah, I mean, there it's it's pretty crazy. So, are you guys just seeing when when that raw product or the finished product already hits into uh, the WA? Is it just being trafficked um, from major ports in, 
then I guess it's it's already in that finished product. You're not seeing any kind of conversion at all. Yeah, correct. And I'm sure there is some form of conversion. Um, as I've said, I'm aware of some liquid, uh, like tequila and other products that was soaked meth was soaked in. Sure. Uh, that was destined for Australia. So I'm sure it is happening. Uh, but a majority we're finding is landing as a finished product. Uh, in large amounts, uh, and then it might be might land in the east coast of Australia, and then be brought across, uh, basically across Australia in trucks or other methods. You guys went to El Paso this past week. Yeah, correct. We've only just returned. And uh, uh, how'd that go? Yeah, it was a really good experience. Uh, so we went down with Zach Chavez, uh, Asac Baker, and our Superintendent Hutchison joined us, uh, and we met with the El Paso uh, special agent in charge, uh, and we basically got a, a tour of all the different sort of aspects of there, um, the DEA down there. Um, so it's really interesting. Obviously, our country is surrounded by water. So our borders and the issues we're facing with drug importation is mainly either across the water um, or it's coming interstate. So to see Mexico that close uh, and Juarez is, you know, you're literally looking from the mountains, you're looking across uh, a wall in essence, and it's such a different country, you know, run by cartels um, and just all this completely different society really uh, and how close that you know the front line to that drug investigation is um so we we did a border tour uh with the uh, border protection unit uh as well as so that was sort of along the walls uh into new mexico uh, we got a tour around there and then the ports of entry uh so the where they walk over uh sort of the f- foot ports and also where the vehicles come in uh just seeing all the technology that they utilize um, that's another pretty big thing that we'd like to bring back, um, sort of the technology, because um, as I said, we have state line borders where um, people will drive and trucks will drive across Australia. Uh, so it's really interesting that we've, there's some things we can take away from that that we can implement uh, to sort of protect our border from drugs coming in. Because, um, yeah, we saw thousands of people, I think they were saying it could be hours uh, that these people are lining up to go to Mexico and come to El Paso, uh, and they'll do it multiple times a day. Yeah, my brother, uh, he, shout out Paul Smith. He's a DPS uh, intelligence lieutenant, and he has to go down to the border uh, every other month for like two weeks at a time. And he t- he tells me some of the stories of what what's going on down there. It's pretty it's pretty busy. Yeah, it looked it. And I mean, you see along the border, we saw like the National Guard. You see a Humvee, and then a couple hundred meters later, you see DPS in their cars, and that's all along. Uh, and they really are the front line of it. They're working their they they're working mm-hmm. their ass off down yep. there. Yep, 100%. Um, but yeah, just the, the magnitude of vehicles and people coming across uh, is really interesting to see how they target those because um, that's, I mean, they can't stop everyone. So uh, it was good to see some of those methodologies. Um, since Obviously, since I've been involved here, we've had some jobs uh, with large trucks coming in um, that were supposedly moving methamphetamine into America. Um, some of those jobs go well, some of them don't. What, okay, let's focus on the ones that don't go well because uh, I'm getting a lot of grins and red faces here at the table. So I think Detective Roach might be able to answer that. All right, all right hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, we don't hit a thousand percent of what we're swinging at. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny. One thing that Ben and I talked about uh, during my grieving process of not hitting any dope in that truck was the the prevalence that you guys are seeing in trucks. I mean, we definitely have it here, but it seems like that's like the way that it's getting to WA, right? And so, um, you know, we get it here uh, not as much as we used to. It kind of comes in spurts. Um, but it's 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 interesting. The, the trafficking methods are the same, but they kind of latch on to uh, what is more prevalent for you guys as opposed to here. So, 
yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I can definitely say we've really cracked down on that. Um, been really focusing on people bringing in drugs via road, you know, trains or vehicles, things like that. Um, so as well, it is reducing sort of some of the good work we've been doing. Do you find it's common in Australia to pull over a truck full of aluminum cans? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and spend a few hours just digging through it in the middle of the, the heat? Certainly not in that heat, no. Detective Roach had me working very hard that day. Yeah, it was hot. <laughs> yeah, it was it was hot. Uh, it was intelligence-driven, just not the smartest. I just love to watch you squirm, though. Uh. <laughs> I did yeah. enjoy the uh, pizza that he bought me the next day. Yeah, there, there <laughs> was there was a significant a amount of pizza. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a significant amount of pizza bought the following day for that. All right, I want to get into like the it, as much as you can, and I understand that everything that Detective Roach works on, and y'all, and 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 a guy, everything is. Uh, we have a level of secrecy, and uh, we don't want to show all of our cards, right? Because this is still a real job, and we're still going after real bad guys. And, and um, as far as case managing, though, how it differs from how y'all do it over there is what you've seen over here from from a case management standpoint. Um, yeah, like it is, it is quite similar. Um, the way that everyone kind of is managing their cases. Obviously, the the way that things are prosecuted here is different to the way things are prosecuted back home. Um, and it's more so the the team structure that probably is the biggest difference. So in a team, like say, for example, that, and I think it's the same with the strike force, you know, you're doing your surveillance, you're doing your investigation, you're doing your own undercover work, you're the, doing everything in-house and everyone's very invested. Um, whereas we're set up slightly different where we have um, units that are specifically set up to do that kind of specialist kind of area. So... Um, there's definitely benefits to, to both ways. Obviously, guys who are doing it day in, day out are you know, experts in their field. Um, but that's probably been like the biggest difference I've seen is just you know some slightly different things around like you know evidence management and the way that evidence is gathered. But for the most part, you know, as I said, when, we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, across borderlines, it's it's you know we're all doing the same work, very similar. When you have like uh, the backing from the prosecutors and, and from your uh, like i guess from here it's our district attorneys uh how is that what does that look like for y'all so we have what's called the office of director of public prosecutions so they're a prosecutorial body um and they're a separate government um agency um so where it kind of differs <clears throat> is we make the decision to charge someone um and it has to go through the court process we don't necessarily have to have the backing from them that they want to prosecute the case is we make the decision if there's sufficient evidence to charge someone relating to a case that we have that we'll charge them and put them before the courts um, and it will eventually depending on the severity of the case and which court it has to fall into um, it may land on on their desk and they become the the attorneys or the, the lawyers prosecuting it and then from there we start working with them and there might be some negotiations around what offences they might proceed with, what ones they might maybe negotiate with, or they go, we might be lacking on this one, but this one's really strong, and they'll kind of work out their strategy from there. But they're um, an independent body from us, um, where they they don't come in until they've already been charged, they've already been to court numerous times, and then once it's committed up to the certain level of court that they need to be at. Okay. When you're managing, going back to managing cases, though, like, as far as how the case agent conducts the surveillance and when it go, and applying trackers or whatever warrant that needs to be written up, is it is it similar or 
No, a different. Where it differs. Yeah, a little bit different. As we say, no. we we more sort of specialised in things like that. Uh, a little bit more siloed. Um, but the, the actual whole investigative methodology is quite similar. I can see the similarities. Um, we just have a few, as we've said, like legislative differences uh, that make us operate in a different manner. Uh, as well as you guys are, you know, um, some things in Australia you may re- require a warrant for, where here you don't, and kind of vice versa. So that really differs. Well, it differs from us from county to county. Yeah, so but we're still responsible for drafting all the affidavits, all the warrants, anything that needs to be done to get those things, you know, utilising your telephone, you know, intercepts, utilising trackers, anything like that. So we're still responsible for managing and driving those things but obviously we just sometimes need to kind of put that that task out to other officers to kind of manage and actually do the actual executing of it all right you i was hearing you do not have like a task force model in western australia do you think that you could maybe is that something y'all were going to try to start up or do you have any like a template that you've obtained from us and being around you know and working with the dea yeah I definitely think that um, something from the DA, we can take some things back. Um, we've done sort of like national-wide uh, TSOC conferences uh, where everyone in like the sort of in the space of transnational crime gets together. Um, WA Police actually hosted one of those uh, and we sort of just put ideas together, discuss cases and really see where we can work together. Um, so something like that is really good that even though we're not going to have different states always working together, we can now call them. You know, we can call our counterparts and work jobs together quite quickly, um, which I think is where your task force model works, where something can happen in the middle of the night and you can call them and it can happen rather than going through, you know, these chains that might take a week because uh, that's not how these drug investigations work. You know, it's, it's too late then. Um, so we've definitely taken that away from working with their, their strike force here and just the, the general enforcement groups. One of the things we talked about off the mic a little while ago was the differences in the wellness ideas that we have and the ones that you guys have. It seems like you guys have been doing this a little bit longer than we have. Um, and Dave, you, you had talked about working undercover some. They they have different specs for how often you need to, to speak with a therapist or a counselor. And yeah. Could you go into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So, I mean, it's in the different areas, you know, you're subject to different kind of psychological stresses. So, I know when I was at Homicide, it was every six months that we had to sit down with uh, one of the psychologists from our health and welfare and just kind of go over how we were coping with what we were seeing. Is it kind of taking, um, you know, effect outside of ours, whether that be through, you know, are you drinking more? Are you with being withdrawn? Um, so what happens in some of our kind of covert areas is it's, it's mandated to be a little bit earlier in the sense that given the, the higher psychological stress that they're subjected to um, and the working conditions that they're in, um, they roll through it much more, much more frequently and are doing it, you know, essentially quarterly to kind of make sure that people in those environments are getting, if there is an issue that it's identified early, but also just to kind of give them an outlet and make sure that everyone's doing okay. Um, and I think I've definitely seen like a shift um, within WA Police Force um, that it's, it's becoming more and more to the forefront of, you know, that officer health and welfare. Um, and I know personally, like, it's definitely what you kind of put in is what you get out of it. So it's just like um, invest in it as much as you can because 
as we kind of spoke about, you, you know, the first time that you want to be speaking with someone is you don't want to have something have happened. If you can kind of get onto something earlier, if it's having an effect on you, you know, and you can see those kind of warning signs, as it's getting onto it and dealing with it. When you don't want to start while you're in a crisis, that's yeah. just the worst time to start. You want to, you, well, what we're trying to do here is, you know, Kent's part of it. As an apartment, we're trying to establish a culture to, to do self maintenance, you know, and 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 have and be aware of warning signs before you go down here, before you go to the bottle for, to cope or just ruin marriages, relationships with friends, and uh, your career. We've had that, and that's what we're trying to establish. And y'all recently, uh, y'all sit in with, and you heard from the great Doctor T. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we did. Yeah, so with the uh, at the supervisors conference that we went to. Uh, so first was there with uh, Dr. T and Dr. Chase. Um, so they're really good. We went through quite a few hours um, and they sort of talked about their experiences with different law enforcement agencies uh, and sort of like coping mechanisms. So not only psychological, but a lot of physical as well because um, it kind of obviously both take a toll on you working these long hours. It's symbiotic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was really beneficial. And what I saw from that was that it was similar to the things that we do in West Australia. Um, but it was really good access. Um, I know a lot of the sort of executive here have had a lot of dealings with FIRST uh, and I think it's going to keep going by the sound of it Um, and it was good. I know the supervisors there were able to probably get some things out of that that they can pass on to their sort of the special agents here and things like that. What did y'all take away from it? I just thought, for me personally, I never really thought about the, the physical side of law enforcement. You're always sort of, we do get told about the psychological impacts and think about that but you don't realize the impact it does actually have on your body and just little things you can do that's going to make you feel a lot better, you know, because if you're constantly physically feeling bad, it's that's going to start playing a psychological side. Yeah, I mean, one of the major things I took away from it was, again, that kind of knowledge and awareness of how it kind of manifests itself in those psychological, uh, the psychological kind of issues may manifest themselves physically and, you know, things that you might not even be aware of. So it was that kind of, if you're seeing those things, just the different tools you can you can kind of use, things like breath work, you know, taking yourself out of that environment, going, you know, they gave us a lot of different things that we could do that are super simple, um, reset and then come back and approach it. And it might not be necessarily something work-related. It could be something's happened during work, but then, you know, you're having like a bit of a snap outside of work and you might be, you know, with your wife or your family or with group of mates, but it was just kind of, that self-awareness of going like, hang on a second, something's going on here. I just need a, I need a time out and I need a breather. So they were really good in giving us some really good tools to, to take away. And they're, they're, yeah, a lot of them were very simple. You can just do it sitting at your table. You can do it sitting at your desk, get up, go for a walk and just the different things to kind of help manage that, come back with a clear head and then like reapproach it. What were the thoughts initially when they first started having you guys do that stuff over in Australia? Um, I think there was, you know, it's probably a, a significant like cultural thing i think everywhere that it's we're big on the whole you know it's not weak to speak kind of thing um and i think it's you know the old mentality of like you know you've got to be this strong resilient you know and that's what you're here for um but there's definitely being like a shift now where guys are, are knowing that it's okay to kind of talk about if they are having issues they don't need to bottle it down because i think especially in my time like i'm coming up to my 15th year it's by no means the longest career in law enforcement but you see the effect that it has on people when they do bottle it down um and it's you know i don't think there's any positivity that comes out of it from people being like no i'm fine i'm okay and you see that kind of spill over and then you know take an effect on their personal life so i think there's definitely becoming 
that cultural shift of, you know, it's okay if you need to, but there's still always going to be that kind of unwillingness to go like, I need some help out of this. And you guys also have a peer support program, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got, you know, police officers that are trained to be that point of contact as well. Um, Because I know it'd be, I've had exposure through the different areas that I've worked to psychologists um, where it was, we had to sit down with them. Um, And I'm a big believer in what you put in is what you get out of it. But I can understand why people would be like, I don't want to speak to a stranger who's not a cop, who doesn't know what I go through, who doesn't understand the pressures um, that maybe necessarily I go through. So the peer support program is really great for that, that you can approach someone who is a co-worker and understands the kind of the environment that you're in. Yeah, so we've also, our agency in the last few years has brought in like mandatory uh, critical incident leave. Uh, So if any officer uh, is exposed to a critical incident, um, which usually involves, you know, some form of injury, um, so they're given three days off or 72 hours off. Um, So when that was brought in, I mean, some people are like, well, I don't want to sit at home, you know, if I've been involved in something, I want to just go straight back to work. Um, But I know that they say a lot of the studies and a lot of things say that you need that time. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of people... They don't. They're not aware that they actually need it. It's like it is some in some cases like wrestling the keys away from a drunk driver. Mm. They don't. They don't realize what they're actually feeling in that uh, in that time frame. So you don't, do y'all believe that having a peer that has actually been in the trenches is important in this approach to in peer support? Yeah, I think so. I think I think law enforcement is different. You know, you really need yeah. someone that understands what you've been through. Same with firefighters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all those kind of jobs. It's just different to a normal job. Yeah, of course. Well, Dr. T has a great line. I love uh, stealing from her, but I always give her credit. She says that uh, first responders are like the the worst human experiment is that we sit somebody down for two to three decades and expose them to the worst horrors uh, of humanity, and we expect them to go out and live normal lives and be normal people. Yeah. It's not. It's It doesn't work that way. Um. So I think we're kind of getting close to wrapping it up, but I want to I want to give you all the opportunity, um, and you can do with it what you want. Is to talk about takeaways that you've had and experiences, and some of the people here that have helped y'all through this through this uh, entire process and in this in this initiative. Uh, is everybody we just kind of talk about? You know, we got two of them sitting here in Guy and and, and David. Uh, but there's some other people here that y'all like to give some shout outs and uh, and take the stage to thank them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no getting around. This was, you know, like a once in a lifetime kind of like opportunity. Um, so obviously the DA and WA police for just giving us, you know, even the possibility of doing it. And it's, you know, having people like Guy Baker, Edward Chavez, John Hutchison, our support agency, like, like you know, Cole Blanche back home, um, everyone from the professional side, but then also... Your mates back on at work, you know, being a phone call away, um, keeping you updated. They're always willing to, you know, check in and see what you're up to, um, right from, like, the family support back home, like the wife. And luckily, it's quite easier now with, like, FaceTime and things like that. Well, you're not as disconnected, so I think it's, you know, we're quite lucky in that aspect. But the guys on the ground here, like, I just couldn't give enough thanks to, to everyone in the whole of the DA field division. Doesn't matter whether it's this office, actually. We go to, we talk about Oklahoma, El Paso, everyone's there you know, making us feel so welcome. We're not kind of outsiders. Everyone's bringing us in. So it's it's been incredible to kind of see just how well everyone, you know, when they need to kind of get things done, everyone's there to kind of help each other out when the when the job's on. But even from like the social aspect, it's been um, 
refreshing to see. Like DA have like a thing of you know saying saying yes to everything, making everything work. They look for more yeses than they do for noes, and that's definitely something I'm going to take back with me from like a professional senses. You know, look for a way to make something happen. You know, someone calls you up and they need to help. It's just like here everyone just drops everything what they're doing and it's just like yeah let's go um not that we don't necessarily always do that but sometimes you know the different competing priorities whereas here it's just kind of like yep what do you need let's get it done Ben, yeah 100 I, I think it's the hospitality really since we've landed um everyone here in the da has really looked after us um like they've had us to their houses they've had us over for dinner uh, we've met families uh kids of all the guys they've really the whole time everyone's looked after us and we really appreciate that um, the amount of times every weekend we're getting more offers for people to look after us than we can even fit in, you know, it's just, uh, you know, Guy Baker especially um, had us to our house. He's a great cook, we found out. <laughs> um, but there's never a time. Obviously, work uh, has been amazing with him and we've learned a lot of things. Um, it, it could be difficult, I could see, having someone come into your office and taking the time to teach them things and show them because I'd understand that they have their own work on and um, a lot of people have taken a lot of time out to really teach us and get us fully engrossed in everything, um, which I know is hard, and I know they've probably put their own work on the back burner to do that. Uh, and I know Guy does that a lot. You know, he's always making sure we're involved, even though he has, you know, a massive workload. Um, so really appreciative of that. Uh, and obviously, you know, our bosses, families, girlfriends back home have been really supportive. Um, I, it, this wouldn't be possible without all that support. And um especially the bosses as we said this is a new initiative and they were really you know backed us to be able to come over here and do it um we've had a great time we've learned a lot and i hope that it can continue um so hopefully some more officers can come over and you guys can do another episode with them somewhere oh yeah i'd love to yeah. no, the blue family we talk about blue family uh a lot on this podcast and and that is very real yeah. and i think you're experiencing that from the southern hospitality and i'm glad that that y'all have taken away you're leaving in a few days correct yeah correct friday a couple of days away yep well i it's an honor for me to to have met all of you and i look forward to the listeners to hearing this episode and you know i want to thank guy and david for you know setting this up and uh special agent uh, chavez for uh allowing us to use the nurturing bosom of the dea field office here in <laughs> dallas and uh Superintendent Hutchison is an honor to meet you. You got uh, you got two pretty damn good troops here. But I want to know, and I think the listeners want to know, which of you can give the best good day, mate? I just be standing, good day, mate. That's good day, normal. mate. Perfect. I think it's the perfect way to wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much uh, for you. sitting here. Thank you for your work, and I want to thank your families for allowing y'all to. And in supporting y'all in this uh, in this initiative, I think this is very important for law enforcement to have this connectivity, uh, in 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 from a from professional standpoint. And now you're part of a DEA family in Texas law enforcement family as well. Thank you. Yeah, very lucky. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Hey, Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up 
on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy When the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run Up from the bottom Yeah, we'll rise above Hey brother Never give up